Welcome to the Canine Classroom, a podcast for dog training professionals and dog enthusiasts where we discuss training, behavior, and everything in between. We're two friends and dog trainers that share a passion for dogs. We're constantly learning, exploring, and questioning each other's ideas as well as our own so we can become better at what we do. We're here to provide helpful advice, have open conversations, ask questions, get answers, as well as hear from colleagues and experts in the industry, regardless of method and training style. So take a seat and get your notepad out because class is in session. Monday through Thursday, three, <laughs> four, four, three hour classes. So, so I'm constantly <laughs> Okay. So then as long as you're cool with that, then you guys can <laughs> keep going. Fine. I just that's didn't fine. want you to do this and then be like, okay, do what you just did again. But yeah. <laughs> no, that's, uh, that's me fine. and Stephanie are more, we wing stuff and Anthony has I, I mean, the notebook. I'm not a planner. First of all, I want to just interrupt Steph. I just want to say, cause he's going to sit there and laugh like a little bitch. <laughs> this son of a bitch over here has a notebook he's been taking fucking notes Whoa. and he didn't say, it's didn't an electric say anything and then too. one day an he magically notebook. goes oh yeah daddy's got notes just so you know <laughs> but, but, so i will i will defend Vinny because i feel like Vinny and i think very like listening to your podcast like our brains work very similarly. Don't give us any, please. The <laughs> last thing I need is his head that getting bigger scary. than it's, it it's a little. It can it can get a little scary up there at times. There's a lot <laughs> going on up there. Um, but it's different taking notes versus also being okay just winging it. Like I'm 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 cool just winging things. Um, it's funny because I work with you know a lot of different instructors, and um, you know. Some people are like, they have their modules and their weeks and they're all planned out. And I'm like, nah, we'll see what happens this week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's I don't even cool know what going on? <laughs> I just like, all right. I mean, yeah. I usually, the, the first few weeks of the semester are pretty, are pretty standard. You know, I got to get through the standard <laughs> stuff. And then it's like, all right, let's see what's happening this week. And I kind of, <laughs> I kind of roll with it. So I'm cool. I'm cool anyway, but um, All right, so that, let's so jump that, in. Okay. <laughs> let's jump in. Do it. All right. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Canine Classroom. I'm Anthony DeMarinas. I am here with Vinnie Viola and Stephanie. Oh, shit. Wait a minute. How the oh, hell do you pronounce no. your last name? Because I have no <laughs> idea. <laughs> it's, it's not as hard as it looks. It's Petoskey. Can we put that in like a blooper or something? <laughs> is it Petoskey? What is yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, that's it. It's Petoskey. perfect. Petoskey. All right. <laughs> All right. Uh, All right. It is hard. I called her Potsky for like <laughs> It wasn't I'm like whatever. How to pronounce it? So your I forgive you for that one. <laughs> it's Steph. We were babies. <laughs> yeah, you were like you were like 12 so you know it's, it's fine all right hey everyone welcome to canine classroom i'm anthony DeMarinas. i'm here with Vinny viola and stephanie rayner and today we have a special guest rebecca petoski did i say it right you did you did, did a right? great job i i was great. thinking of the the way steph just said it and i'm like damn she just <laughs> said that and now i don't know if i said it right no nope, it was perfect <laughs> 
So let me introduce you. So Rebecca grew up around dogs and livestock. By the way, last week I read someone's bio. I read Sue Sternberg's bio. Horrible. Bombed it. It was terrible. So I'm hoping yeah, we I can even make be letting it him do this right Hoping now. I can make this up right now. I should have re-recorded that one. But anyway, <laughs> Rebecca grew up uh, around dogs and livestock, which fostered her interest in pursuing a career in animal science. Rebecca obtained her bachelor's from Rutgers University in animal science and her postgraduate degree from the University of Edinburgh, the Royal Dick School of Veterinary uh, Studies in clinical animal behavior. She currently combines her background in livestock production and animal behavior, working at Rutgers University in the animal care department, managing the sheep and goat herds, while also teaching small ruminant uh, practicum and experience-based education course for animal science students. In addition, Rebecca also works as a dog trainer and an agility coach. Rebecca currently owns four dogs and enjoys competing in agility, freestyle fly, uh, freestyle flying disc, and dock diving. But her uh, most passionate, uh, her but is most passionate about agility. Damn, so close! Here we go. So close. close. (laughs) Rebecca loves. We have to having Vinny read these. Rebecca loves the challenge uh, to challenge both her and her practicum and and dog training students. Uh, ideas and beliefs while providing opportunities for them to think analytically and critically. Welcome. Hello. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. So now that I read that, tell us what you do. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's quite complicated. So uh, I work in animal care at Rutgers university, which is the state university of New Jersey. Uh, It's a land-grant college, and we have a very large animal science program, and as part of the students' curriculum, they need to complete what are called experience-based education courses. So I teach one of those experience-based education courses, which is small ruminant practicum. Ruminants are animals that uh, have a four-part digestive system, so like cows and sheep and goats. So I teach essentially sheep and goat management. So that's basically what I do in a in a nutshell. I also manage the animals that are used in, in the teaching herds. Do you have herding dogs at the college? No. Well, I have mine. <laughs> My border collie comes Do they to... ever play with the sheep? Do they ever no, get to work a little? Not at all. Damn. Not at all. That'd be the best job if I could teach and let my dogs work the stock. Ooh. Um, my passion is agility. And, um, you know, I work with small ruminants all day. So in the afternoon and, and at night, I, I don't really want to, you know, play with <laughs> sheep and goats <laughs> more. <laughs> um, I used to. I wish I, I could to. say the same for Anthony, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, also the thought, you know, I mean, dogs, dogs get injured doing all kinds of sports, but you know, I, our sheep are not dog sheep. They're not trained sheep. So the thought of my inexperienced dog getting injured when I have bigger aspirations for her in agility is (laughs) that's kind of where I want to keep her. All right. All right. So where do we go from here, my friends? <laughs> well, I was gonna Come on, Vinny. You, you, 
Well, you guys were talking so wonderfully beforehand when you were trying to plan everything out. And I was like, let's just hit the record button and get the ball rolling. Well, well I so mean, we I were can... talking about ethics and we were mm-hmm. talking about being a vegetarian, but working with animals yeah. and we were talking about beliefs and, you know, where do beliefs come from? How do we talk to students about um, finding their own beliefs or maybe where do mm-hmm. they look for? I don't know. You can kind of that's what I was gathering from what you were talking about. Yeah, I would like to just let it be known that this episode. Is, yeah. Is so, I mean, again, I teach small room and it. <laughs> oh wait, sorry, we had a little bit of a lag there. Delay situation there, yeah. I was going to say this this episode's happening because of Rebecca because uh, she heard our first episode and thought, you know, she has a bunch of students and and they're always wondering about how to become dog trainers. And um, we had touched on the fact that we just have to do your research, but but Rebecca made a really great point about how do you start when you don't even know what you believe in. So I thought <laughs> Rebecca could kick the episode off by kind of posing the question to us, turning it around on us and, and starting the conversation the same way that she does in her classroom. So. I love it. Yeah. So um, on that note, while I teach livestock production, essentially, um, one of the things that is not lost on me is the fact that my students have a, a varied interest in the careers they want to pursue in animal science. So yes, I teach a lot of pre-vets. I teach some that are interested in ag and food systems. And then of course, I teach a lot of students who are actually companion animal science majors and are interested in going into some field in that in that vein. Um, and a lot of my students want to be dog trainers. And um, I almost cringe every time they ask that because it's such a complicated field in some ways to get into, because we all know how important experience is and having a good mentor and doing your research. But when you go into the world, there is quite a variety of methodologies. There's a lot of different thoughts on how the training should be or can be pursued. So how do you tell somebody they need to gain experience and do research when that is almost like a minefield. So one of the things that I do like talking to my students about is what they believe in and first asking them, you know, how they feel their experiences, how they feel um, their socioeconomic status, their culture, their family has all affected what they believe in. And I know for me, that certainly has been the case when it comes to raising animals or dog training. Um, So I grew up with dogs and animals my whole life. And um, I remember the my first puppy that I had, she was a little white fluffy puppy was uh, stuff like like Tauntaun. And (laughs) I had I had a little Tauntaun was my very first dog as a little little child and um her name was Katie and uh my parents of course I was way too young to know actually like how to train this dog and my parents were of the very traditional you know rolled up newspaper kind of thing and um as a child so I was I was a terrible dog trainer as a seven-year-old um, mm-hmm. because, you know, we would have accidents in the house and because I didn't 
want my parents to yell at her and, you know, use the rolled up newspaper, I would hide the accidents. And I got major, major trouble for that. Um, But I think that kind of also spurred me to finding ways that I was more comfortable with, with dog training as well. Um, And also, again, really spurred my desire to want to talk about these things with with my students. Um, Like Vinny mentioned, I am a vegetarian teaching a livestock production class. And, you know, how do I justify that? How do I set up my ethical framework? What are the things that I believe? And ultimately, um, it comes down, I, I try to form the basis of my beliefs in things that are um, tested, in things that are um, backed up with science. I'm, I'm a scientist, ultimately. So how I justify raising animals for livestock is uh, in the fact that as omnivores, we have evolved. And of course, we can always argue this by saying we have evolved and we've evolved past the eating of meat, but we have evolved as omnivores. So morally, that gives us the okay in which to consume meat and to raise animals as long as it's done humanely and sustainably for production purposes. And so um, I like to have my students kind of think, what are some of those factors that have affected their um, ethical frameworks and um, how do they how do they feel that they have set up their ethics around them so I'll I'll pose that to first to Stephanie Um, how do you think how do you think you're you know we again are very similar in how we grew up we grew up around animals Um, I'm sure you're the same way but there was never a moment in my life to this day, that there wasn't a dog in my house, like just never. So um, always grew up with animals. And um, you grew up with a mom who did more training than my parents did. But how do you how do you think that's that's have you um, veered from some of your mom's methodologies? Um, Do you? Yeah. Why? Like what? What has been? Well, I mean, yeah, like I, like you said, I, I grew up around dogs. My mom was a dog trainer and it wasn't of course until later in life that I could appreciate that. Um, and so I, and, and unlike you, I don't think that my brain works in the science, uh, (laughs) rooted aspect. So for me, I've always just been kind of like a, like a feeling kind of Mm -hmm. a person, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like, I think I've just always naturally been able to tell like if a dog is happy and and to be able to like foster that and if the dog is clearly uh unhappy or stressed how to change the situation to to make it better for them but for me my methods I think have evolved just because training has evolved um from when my mom first started I won't say how many years ago she'd probably be a little (laughs) bit sad if I gave away (laughs) We won't do that. We won't do that. (laughs) But, um, but yeah, I mean, even from a young age, I found a a mentor because of my mother. And Mm -hmm. again, wasn't until later in life how I could appreciate what, what the mentor did for me. Um, Diane Bauman, she's Mm -hmm. an amazing, amazing trainer. Um, I think in 
all areas of training from uh, pet matters to behavior to agility, herding, you name it, she does it. And I am incredibly grateful for all that she taught me. But even since then, I think my my views have changed simply because the rules have changed. I've I've worked with more dogs. I now have more experience mm-hmm. and each dog has taught me something a little bit different, you know? Um, so I don't know. I just think time and, and hands-on knowledge is what has helped mm-hmm. me develop my methods and my mm-hmm. ethics and framework. And yeah. yeah. And I think that's why I kind of brought up the, you know, the Katie story and, um, mm-hmm. you know, her having accidents in the house and that kind of being, I think the starting of, I want to, you know, with my, my second dog, which was, I was much older, so there was maturity, but, you know, remembering that there was that aspect of, you know, dog training is a, is an art and a science. And there was that aspect of that anthropomorphizing or, you know, the um, desire, you know, the empathy for the animal and saying, you know, we don't, I, I, don't like this. Like, what can I do? And, and at that age, even when I got my second dog, I certainly didn't have a, a background in scientific literature to guide me. It was mm-hmm. just more, um, going by that feeling, mm-hmm. which, you know, again, dog training is an art in the science. Um, as I get older, I'm trying to have something a little bit more tangible to wrap my mind around. Um, and for you, that might be somewhat results too, which I think is kind of interesting when we talk about methodology and I hate to like, I'm, I'm doing a Vinny now I'm going off, but <laughs> one of the things that we have talked about is that in different, um, kind of genres of dog training, there's more divisiveness between beliefs and there's, you know, we generally stick to agility. Mm. And um, there's just not that divisiveness there. So I think that's kind of interesting as well in that, you know, um, my big question is, um, why is that? And maybe we can, maybe we can come back to that later. I was actually going to ask that I was going to ask, do you and Steph feel that the reason that this that the divisiveness isn't there is because you guys aren't looking at it necessarily as methodology as opposed to there are certain maybe systems out there that people promote uh in in agility versus like methodology itself yeah i mean there's definitely different systems in agility but a system of handling is a lot different than dog training in that behavior aspect. And how do we get the dog to do this behavior? Um, And it's, you know, it's just much, it's much less divisive. Yes. Um, So what kind of trainer am I? It's such a hard label to say. I generally um, veer way, way, way towards, um, R plus, um, force-free, uh, side of things. But does that mean that I never use positive punishment or negative punishment or even negative reinforcement? No. Anytime we withhold a reward, we're essentially using, um, you know, negative punishment. 
So that's important to remember too. But, you know, I, I think the reason why my, my um, hypothesis is that the reason why you don't see the divisiveness in agility is because it, other methodologies would not work. You would not get the same results that you see in, you know, the more positive reinforcement. And I think um, when you look at other sports, if you look at Frisbee, maybe even more so than agility. Um, And I I think that's, you know, that's kind of interesting too. And then when you look at things that are um, more instinctual, like herding or bite sports, that's when we start to see um, some more divisiveness in the methodologies of training. Why? Because something that is so instinctual is almost not going to need to be protected um, and built as much as uh, agility or disc or things that are less instinctual. And um, the other thing that I think about is um, I'm, I'm laughing because it's, it's Steph's. Who is your favorite friend at my house? Oh, no. <laughs> Scuttle the chicken. Scuttle the chicken. So, the um, chicken, guys. <laughs> oh, yeah. Steph hates birds. That's right. Yes. Steph hates birds. <laughs> hates birds. So I have, I have a rooster. His name is Scuttle. He's my pet. And I clicker trained him. So he can ring a bell. He can touch a target. He can fetch a ball. He can do all these like little tricks. And um, I could never, ever, ever accomplish that uh, with using anything but positive reinforcement, essentially. So I think that, um, yes, all four quadrants work. But I think it's you know, really interesting when we start to really think about why some fields are heavy one way or another. I don't think it's because, um, you know, positive reinforcement wouldn't work or punishment wouldn't work. I think it's what you can kind of get away with in those fields. And I think ultimately the reason why you see um, less divisiveness in certain areas is just because it, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't work to do more coercive type of, you know, practices with disc or dock diving or agility I think, or a uh, chicken. I have a question. Do you feel that it's because the dog's instinct or drive to do certain behavior is why we might see more punishment type or aversive type based methods. And like for me with sheep herding, I I know that there are people who are really heavy handed. Mm -hmm. And so is it because, is that something that you feel well, because the dog's instinctual motivation is to want to herd and control Mm -hmm. the stock Mm that the the trainer or the handler is able to get away with Mm -hmm. punishment Mm-hmm. in those scenarios because the dog is so driven mm-hmm. and is it's an instinctual response that though you can definitely squash it if if you're really harsh and all that 
Is that what you feel like the same with bite work? Vinny could ask, you know, mm-hmm. or talk more about that. But do you feel like those dogs that have that drive, that intensity, that that's the reason um, that you would that of what you're saying in terms of like why uh, positive reinforcement would really is what's going to work in those in certain things versus in other areas? Yeah, I think, again, all of the quadrants will work to an extent. But the re- there's a good amount of research that shows when we're using, um, you know, more aversive methods that there is potential for fallout. And so when we are talking about those sports that we tend to see more aversive methods used, what types of dogs are doing those sports? Um, Tauntaun. <laughs> I wonder if you, Kiko, is going to listen to it. You should probably let the I'll, audience I'll tell her. Tauntaun. I was going to say, yeah, yeah. I was gonna ask, yeah. Oh, Tauntaun. Oh, what is he? Like a, like a Maltese? A Maltese. He's like yeah. a little white fluffy dog. Yeah. Um, but, you know, those, what dogs are doing hurting? Dogs that have been specifically bred for generations to herd. And that instinct is so hardwired. It, it is such an instinctual behavior that why do often a lot of people with those types of dogs get into agility because those dogs need an outlet for that instinct that they have. It's no different than um, there's certain instincts with uh, any animal that are just innate. And if you restrict the animal from doing those instincts, it causes um, a decrease in welfare. So an example in our livestock would be pigs. Pigs have to root. They have to root. That's an instinctual behavior. So if they can't, then they're going to undergo a lot of stress and their welfare is going to be decreased unless we give them some sort of outlet for that behavior um, to mimic it. So for instance, in our pigs that are on the finishing decks or are not able to access dirt on the farm, we give them balls and chains and things to move around with their nose. So they have that same uh, natural, they're be able to perform that same natural behavior. So my hypothesis is that we see Um, the use of more aversive methods and we don't see as much fallout and they are more likely to be accepted in those sports that are, that have those animals in them, those dogs that are just so hardwired instinctually to do that, that that's what they need to do. So we're not seeing the severe ramifications that if we were to use that heavy handedness or those aversive methods in disc or agility, because what dogs are in agility? Yeah, we have a lot of border collies, sure. But again, doing agility is not the same as hurting. It's not, it's, it's, you know, like having a ball to roll around. It's a good substitute, but it's still not quite the same as hurting. So if we are using those heavy handed methods, then you know, there's much more likely. I just, I want to push back. I want to push back on this for a little bit. So, um, I do mondoring. I'm, I'm new to it. I've been doing it less than a year. So I'm not like a mondoring bite work expert. Um, I want to first say that I think a lot of fallout with tools relates to how those tools are being used. That's just kind of like a different 
thing that I want to just say up front. But when you look at a sport like agility, mm-hmm. a border collie, if, if, if you bring a border collie to an agility room, it's never been in one and there's jumps and stuff. I, I don't know if that dog's just going to start jumping over everything. So it's like you're asking for the work up front And then the reward is like, maybe they're getting motivated by toys or food afterwards. Whereas if I'm at Mondio Ring and I give Zim a bite, like that is the biggest reward for him. If I like the the tools that might be used or when they're going to be used is controlling his drive to want to do that thing or to get him off of it. Because once he's now in a like a live scenario where he's biting on a decoy's leg and that decoy's fighting and struggling and running away like like that is just supreme reward event right like he is biting mm-hmm. someone that's yelling and screaming and moving like i feel like that's why then an aversive would have to be used um in that scenario rather than like oh yeah like come off of that thing that you value at like a level a thousand for this like treat that's a hundred you know Mm -hmm. what i mean Mm -hmm. like if i went out to a field and like put an electric collar on my dog and like shocked him until he bit a decoy's leg i think that would be like kind of how you're describing like almost using an electric collar at agility like what are you going to do like shock the dog until it jumps over the the thing and then release the pressure like that dog is going to be fucked up like you're going to take a dog and be like i'm going to shock you until you go through a tunnel like that dog is going to be like holy shit i hate this so it's not that and maybe there are people because again i'm kind of i'm 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 newer to it but like from what I've done with my own personal dog is like, we are super like loading up that drive and getting that dog amped. Like there's not even like, he's on a freaking like a sled dog harness dragging me around the field because all we're doing is building up his like drive to do this thing. And like, unfortunately for me as like a handler that wants control of my dog, like I'm like, that is the best thing to him. Like there's probably nothing I'm going to do that's gonna be equal to him biting on a decoy's leg you know what I mean so I think I feel like that might be I think that's why because some sports are more control and then some sports are just like amped like if you're doing dock diving which like I love dock diving but like you know you can come out of your car and your dog can drag you through the mud all the way up to the pool and then you throw a bumper into the water and that dog just jumps and does it like I don't see where you would even need to have any control like at at all, really, except for maybe if your dog is like, you know, running out of the pool after and chasing people on the sideline and like some of them probably do that, you know, but it's like you give like at Mondering, like you give like he knows if I bring Zim to a field and someone is holding a stick, even if it's not the decoy, he knows he's like, that's the one that's the guy. And now I feel it like he is charged like that is the number one motivating factor um so I don't know what you think about that like like I still think I can screw him up and have fallout with tools I still think I could use a tool incorrectly and create a dog that's messed up um but yeah when I was when I was hearing you talk I was like it almost feels like like a little bit of an unfair comparison um but i just wondering what you think what you think about that so i do i do think there's 
I, I know what you're saying, but also, so I think the example of dock diving, yeah, there's, um, and the dock divers are going to come for us because I, I don't, claim to, to, I, I don't, I love dock diving. I bring, I bring my, <laughs> oh, dogs I mean, like I do it as a hobby. Like I'm not, I, I don't, I do it. <laughs> I, I don't train dock diving. My dog just yeah. goes off the dock. So I should, I should stipulate that, but I can see how there is a different level of control in agility versus, um, dock diving. But, um, I would argue that, um, agility is actually similar to what you're talking about with your bite sports in that those obstacles, we spend a lot of time teaching obstacle commitment, obstacle focus, and the drive to want to take those obstacles. But immediately when our dogs are young, we'll do jump, jump tunnel. And the dogs absolutely love the tunnels and they're flying through the tunnels. And we might not even have to reward every tunnel because the tunnel is just self-rewarding that running and and Mm -hmm. going is self-rewarding. But then we do jump, jump here, and they are not allowed to take the tunnel that they just took. So we're in agility, we're building that in. And I totally can sympathize with your dog not wanting to give up, you know, the bite, because the treat is not worth Jack compared to, you know, the bite. But that's where I think we need to be maybe or we can be more creative. So um, I have a little border collie mix named Kindle. And um, I had a really hard time getting Kindle to do a table. And it's still, luckily, she's retired from ever having to do a table. So in agility, the table is um, an obstacle where they jump up and they have to stay for five minutes. And that was really hard for Kindle because she wanted to continue running. And the stay was um, demotivating. It was punishing. And no cookie was worth her getting on that table. It wasn't worth it to her. So she would just avoid it because the treat wasn't worth it. So I do think that there are similarities between the sports. Um, But I think the big difference is I can't use a tool to get her on the table, like you mentioned. Like then (laughs) then it's just really not going to happen. So, you know, could I correct her when she avoided the table? Yes. Would that work? I don't know. I don't know. I, I have a feeling, no, it would just create more stress around the whole thing that she really doesn't like anyway. So instead, what I did with Kindle was if she got on that table, she just jumped on that table and stayed there for a split second, she was allowed to leave and we would go do something fun that she wanted to do and just build up duration. So I think that they are similar. I just think that in the case of agility, it's pretty clear that I can't use a tool to get the behavior that I want. I think that, again, when you're talking about something so instinctual, like herding or bite sports, you can, I don't want to say get away with using a tool, but you really don't necessarily have to be that creative because you have that kind of wiggle room. Not that we, we necessarily want to use it. I mean, again, that goes back to our, our ethical beliefs and, you know, whether you want to do that or not. Um, 
is a matter of, of what you believe. But I do think with some sports, you have the kind of wiggle room that you're not necessarily going to see the fallout with these dogs who are just so instinctually driven for that thing. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, and that makes sense. And then, you know, there's, there's even the ethical concern of like, why are you even doing a dog sport? You know, like there's people that are like oh, against yeah. that. So it's like they might say something like, if you have to use a tool to get your dog to do mondioring, like why even do mondioring? And then I guess me personally, back to beliefs, is if I fully believe that my dog loves doing it, right? Like mm-hmm. then I'm going to do it. I'm not going to drag my dog to a field to do some sport and then start putting tools on him and punishing him. Mm-hmm. to do something that he doesn't even want to be doing in the first place. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, cause you know, there are people that are, you know, against sports in general. And I totally get it. Cause it is kind of weird if you're like doing a sport for yourself with your dog and like your dog doesn't even want to be there. Like whether or not, whether you're using tools or not, it doesn't really matter. Like, you know, you could I just mean- be using cookies, but if you're like making your dog jump over hoops to get its meals or to get treats and it doesn't even want to be jumping over them you know like I feel like that could be just as detrimental to a dog Mm -hmm. and I think on the flip side to you know I think that you see much less of that in some sports than you do in agility I think it's a lot easier to get dogs that are just lackluster about agility to do agility Um, I don't think you're going to see that in bite sports. I don't think you're going to see that in herding. Um, You certainly, one of the reasons why disc frisbee is not that popular is because how do you get a dog to bite, you know, go and chase something if it doesn't want to do that? (laughs) Um, You know, it's, it's a lot harder to do than agility. And so, you know, there's, again, depending on the sport, will kind of depend on, you know, that aspect as well, which I think, um, you know, kind of plays into just, again, going back to ethical frameworks, um, how when it comes to frameworks, we may set up different frameworks depending on the situation. So I was talking to you before about lying versus killing, you know, a lot of people will be okay with a white lie because, um, you know, it protects the person that you are lying to, or, you know, saves you from a very uncomfortable situation. Um, Some people don't feel you should lie at all, that it's just wrong. Um, Some people feel that, you know, lying is wrong, because the person has the right to know the truth. There's a lot of different things. And like I said, you know, we flip that to killing. And it's a very different situation for most of us. Um, it's more generally <laughs> most, uh, <laughs> most, l- luckily <laughs> most, um, but I, you know, I, I was talking before about the COVID situation. I mean, I pose the question, what if we had selectively culled people initially when the pandemic first started, who could have potentially saved millions of lives? Well, anybody saying that is probably thought to be absolutely you know, psychotic, we would never do that. We would never, you know, use a utilitarian um, viewpoint in when it concerns people's lives, because people have the right to live. So I think that is very similar in, t- in what we see with different dog sports and different um, situations, you know, we may 
we may use um, or justify the use of, you know, a more aversive method. Again, I tend to fall in the more, um, you know, don't like to use those methods. I try to be creative and be as positive as possible. But ultimately, realizing when my dog, when my little Kindle misses the dog walk, um, my protocol for that is I, I pick her up. So she misses her dog walk contact. I pick her up and I hold her. Um, whether that is positive, positive punishment because, you know, I'm holding her. So I'm, I, I'm, I'm adding a, a, an adversive or whether that is negative punishment, taking her away from running agility. I don't know because she hasn't told me, <laughs> but ultimately, you know, that is kind of aversive for her. Um, and so even though I err towards that side of, I try to, um, my methodologies are very positive reinforcement based. Um, I am recognizing that I don't think you can be all one way or another all of the time. Does that kind of make sense? That makes perfect sense. Yeah. So, yeah, Anthony. So where who gets to decide where that line is drawn and then I think this is going back to your main question of beliefs and then I can kind of tie into like where my beliefs are coming from and like Mm -hmm. and how I shift um I feel like my beliefs might change from person to person and dog to dog and I think that's why it's so difficult for me to be like I am xyz trainer and my method is this right like because it might change from if I'm talking about your dog versus Stephanie's dog versus Anthony's dog like you might have a dog who is more upset that you took them out of that training opportunity to do agility by picking them up than Mm -hmm. if you would have went over and used body pressure or tapped them with a leash back onto the right like the one dog I'm like I wish you would have just told me that I did that wrong and like tapped me on the shoulder or, or nudged me with a leash instead of picking me up and then not letting me, you know, back to my, my example is like a dog might not out off the decoy and the decoy could like completely stop, go limp. We take the dog off, put him in the car and then don't let him train for the rest of the day. Or you pop him with a tool or you do some type of thing. And then the dog goes, Oh shoot, sorry. I didn't mean to do that. And then I'm going to go back again. And then again, that's dog dependent. If you use a tool on the dog and the dog gets shut down and then never wants to bite a decoy again, or you pick the dog up and then the dog freaks out and never wants to go on that piece of equipment again. It's like, I feel like sometimes what happens is like, we always say the dog gets to choose the reinforcer, right? Like everyone always says that, but then when it comes to like, what is aversive or what is punishing, it's like, then all of a sudden we completely, then we go back to choosing what it is. And I feel like it's not always clear cut. And I know I'm sounding like, I'm just like this like crazy balanced trainer. That's like using prong college and lecture college. That's not even where I'm coming from. I just see both sides of the argument where, you know, like I have, like, I do things with my pit bull that if I were to do, like, I do things with my Pipple for rewards, that if I did the same thing to my lab, he would think it was a punishment, right? Like, I have a Pipple that I go whack around and smack him on the butt, and the dog, like, freaking hits the walls and thinks it's, like, the best thing in the world. If I did that to my Labrador, he would lay down on the floor and think he was in trouble and not move. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So it's, like, mm-hmm. back to, like, beliefs and and your original question that you posed to Stephanie actually with coming up with concrete evidence. And I feel like that's, what's hard for me 
and why sometimes I do take a more pragmatic approach is because when I read these studies, I think like, you know, oh, like 50 dogs were trained this way and 50 dogs were trained that, that way. And then I think about like the last 50 dogs that I trained and like none of them are even the same. And then I start thinking like, what if like little Fifi that I trained on Friday was in group A? And like, what if my dog Baloo is in group B? Like, you know what I mean? And then it's like, mm-hmm. that's what gets so hard for me with all of like the science stuff, which like I do, I do like, and I do follow, but I, I will admit I take with a grain of salt um, because of that, because I believe in mostly what I can see and what I observe. And I know not everyone to tie in another question was like, what do you do when you're first starting off? And unfortunately I learned a lot from a lot of mistakes and it's hard to like see that when you haven't made them yet. And then also you want to try to pass on knowledge to the people that are coming up now to not make the same mistakes that you made so that the dogs don't have to suffer. Like, it's not like, Oh, go out and just like wing it with a hundred dogs and mess them up and then learn from that. You don't like, that's a bad way to learn. But, and then like Stephanie says, is like, as time goes on and you've been around more dogs and doing it longer and longer, you have kind of a bigger sample size of your own which then makes me even lately, I'm like, shoot, like every day I meet a dog that kind of like challenges me and and makes me think again. And I think that's what keeps me doing this. And that's what makes me excited about being a trainer, because I don't think my beliefs are fully set because I'm not pleased completely with any specific methodology. Like, I think they all can, I think there's still more. And I think there is going to be more, you know, we're going to keep learning um whether it's this generation or next generation in 20 50 years because i do see little blank areas i'm like yeah this still doesn't feel right there's mm-hmm. something missing here i think this could be better i feel like there's more we could be doing for leash reactivity or more we could be doing about aggression like really this is it and i don't mean one or two camps like because i learned from all the camps like either one you go to the best on both sides and i'm like eh, there's got to be something else and that's what kind of keeps me keeps me going and and fuels me every day I think that's the way you need to be because again, like I said to Stephanie, dog training is an art and a science. I think you need to understand the science in order to then dabble in the arts. You know, you have to Mm -hmm. understand color theory in order to, you know, then go and paint or, you know, be excel in, in the, in, in the artistic world. So I, I, definitely hear what you're saying. As far as the science go, one thing that I always tell my students is you have to, when you're looking at a scientific paper, um, you have to look critically at it. Uh, And don't be afraid to say, well, you know, this study, um, uh, you've probably seen the studies um, that are, you, you know, in support of Um, more aversive methods because they look at blood cortisol, right? So there's studies out there that show that blood cortisol is lower in dogs that are trained using aversive methods than positive reinforcement. Well, we know the reason why that is, is because of anticipatory blood cortisol. So anticipatory stress, whether stress is good stress or bad stress, you're still stressed, you're still going to have blood cortisol produced. So of course, dogs that are excited because they're going to get a reward are going to show elevated levels of blood cortisol. That doesn't mean they're under um, adversive stress necessarily. So there's in science, we always want to, it's, it's 
um, it's an, uh, an art in, a, in and of itself just to read scientific papers. Um, you know, if you just look at the abstracts on a lot of these papers, they don't really tell you those things that you're asking about, like um, sample size. So were they all the same breed? Um, how old were they? You know, what was the population makeup? And um, so it's good. It's good that you're asking those questions because some studies will, um, you know, even if they're published, they have concerns because of sample size, because of, you know, just the population that was used. Or a lot of our behavior studies are done through questionnaires. And there's always question about, you know, um, retroactive studies and, you know, people's memories on things. So absolutely, we don't know everything in science, but, um, you know, we're getting there. We're learning more, just like you said, we're evolving. And I think as dog trainers, that is the most important thing is to keep up with the science, keep an open mind. And this is the one thing that I tell my students all the time as well, regardless of what you're trying to form your ethical framework around, um, it's really important to keep an open mind and, you know, to not be afraid to change because we're learning something new every single day. And if we're stuck and stagnant and closed mind, then there's a good chance that, um, you know, we won't, we won't grow. So I, I do think that's important. Yeah. And then you also want to remember that some of the best artists and musicians are self-taught and they didn't know shit about the mm -hmm. color. <laughs> they didn't know shit about That's, the color palette yeah. and they picked up a guitar and they just fiddled around with it and they made some of the best music in the world because sometimes you can be constrained by that because then you're only looking at things like inside of the box and it doesn't mean you want to go so far out that you're like lost or you're doing things that are ineffective but I feel like Sometimes in order to be truly innovative, you have to think beyond the constraints of like what just the science says. And it's funny that you brought up like studies because Anthony and I were talking about this today and we plan on having like another episode in the future about some of the studies that are thrown out because you could talk on both sides about them. Like, like I've read some of the studies that are against electric collars and I'm like, really? And not that I'm like pro electric collar and I want electric collars to be like shown that they're amazing, but the way that they tested them, I'm like, but that's mm -hmm. not even how anyone's using the electric collars. Like, what do you mean? You just put them on the dog and just press them randomly. You know what I mean? Like, okay. Like if I gave you a treat pouch and just said, okay, have a training session with your dog and just throw treats on the floor randomly. And then I made a study on it and was like, oh yeah, treat training sucks. You'd be like, well, no one's rewarding their dogs like that. Like we have markers and we have, we have ways of letting the dog know when they're earning it. It's just like, it's, it's weird. It's weird when it, when they're put out like that. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's been a while now. I don't want to date myself, but when I was doing research and statistics, I always learned you don't prove anything, right? Like mm -hmm. you, you can't prove anything. You find, yeah. you find support and you find, find evidence. Support. Yep. Um, and just one, and Anthony, I just, one more thing and then I'll be done. I'm sorry. You know, you know, Vinny, you know, Vinny with this, because it made, it made me think when you're talking about the cortisol levels, like my Labrador, I train clicker training and shaping and cookies and completely super, super force free. And the poor dog was in a loop, was like in behavior loops all day long. 
all day long because I didn't know any better. I didn't know how to teach him to settle. I didn't want to throw him in a crate and shut him down. I didn't want to use, you know, negative punishment or, or like negative reinforcement or be like, Hey, you have to be done now. So the dog was constantly being marked and shaped and rewarded and Lord, the dog would be offering behaviors from the moment he woke up until the moment we went to sleep. And is that not a weird stress to be like fiending for Mm -hmm. the next reward all day long? Mm -hmm. So like, you know, and it's, it's changed the way I've trained because I realized like, wow, I was using no aversives, but I was being aversive. And that's again, why my ethical framework has changed. So not just look at like a tool, you know what I mean? Like, as like, oh, like that person is abusive or that owner is aversive, you know, rather than like, oh, you only have a tree pouch and cookies, but you have a prong collar. And then like, so you're definitely the bad one and you're definitely the good one. Because I feel like there's so many weird, strange little gray areas um, where it gets way more intricate than that. Yeah, I, I completely agree that it's way more intricate, but um, I would argue that with your lab situation, that wasn't that the positive reinforcement was bad or the methodology was bad it was that you were just a inexperienced trainer and did not train behaviors that your dog needed to know um, in order to you know cope in order to live so exactly what I was saying with my dog Kindle do I consider myself a, a you know very strongly positive reinforcement trainer absolutely do when I pick her up or when I um, withhold a treat. Am I aware that I'm using negative punishment? It, it can absolutely be, you know, construed by, by the dog like that. So, yeah. And I mean, again, in agility and, um, in my training in general, um, I, and I can tell you this from, from training a chicken, you, you've got, <laughs> you've got two times, You've got two times. And if he does not get a reward, that chicken is buggering off. He's not going to just sit there and look at you and keep offering behaviors. He's be like, all right, I'm going, I'm, I'm gone. So, you know, you do have to get creative. You have to set up, you know, the animal to be successful and, um, you know, make sure that you're setting them up for success. And then uh, another example, kind of on the same vein as your lab, when I was teaching Scuttle to, um, to um, retrieve a ball, uh, every time he would pick up the ball, he would start to shake it. And I was inadvertently, of course, marking with the clicker the moment he <laughs> like went to grab it and shake it. So the whole retrieving the ball eventually, you know, quickly turned into him just grabbing it and flinging it across the room. <laughs> which was when not the behavior I wanted him to do. So, um, you know, I had to, of course, work backwards, but I mean, it's not that the clicker training didn't work. It's that my timing was off and I needed to get creative in order to, you know, make that happen. Now, but now think- this is also where I just want, I don't want to cut you off, but no. this is also where then we have to also remember who we're teaching because we're not just teaching the dog, we're working with a regular dog owner. So to mm-hmm. your point with Vinny, when you were saying like, you know, you may have been a more inexperienced trainer at that time, but the reality is, is that that's who we're working with. 
Mm-hmm. And so like, I actually was just telling Vinny today about a client where the dog was exactly what he just described in his own dog. And it's a cattle dog that lives in Brooklyn. And the dog constantly, constantly, constantly wouldn't stop. Like she's on all day. And the owner was constantly reinforcing the dog throughout the day, trying to reinforce calm behavior because Mm -hmm. that's what she was originally taught. Mm -hmm. And, you know, probably what she read online as well. And it Mm -hmm. kept making the behavior worse. So then for me, in terms of where I've shifted and where I've changed with my ethical beliefs, I had to sit there and say, okay, where, where is the owner at with this? Where's the dog with this? Because the dog was stressed. The dog was definitely stressed because she was on all day long. And when she couldn't get what she wanted, she started doing a lot of demanding type of behavior constantly, constantly, constantly. And guess what happened? The owner was stressed. The owner's regretting, like, you know, is resenting the dog. And so a lot of the time we're going into a home now where we have to make an ethical decision for two teams or two different individuals, the dog and what's best for the dog and what's best for the owner, Mm -hmm. because if the owner resents the dog, Mm -hmm. that's not going to make the dog's behavior better. And if anything, it's going to affect the relationship long-term or worse. And so, you know, for me with, with that case, I mean, I, said to the owner, I said, you know, we have to like, you're always reinforcing, reinforcing, reinforcing. And now we have to like really step in and let this dog know this is not okay. Because the, the, so I'll just give an example. So that way everyone um, maybe like can break it down because I love examples, but for this particular client, every time she was on a zoom call or a phone call, the dog would start demand barking. She started, she, you know, not knowingly was probably reinforcing the dog for calm behavior, trying to teach the dog to stay calm by reinforcing the dog constantly. So every time the dog heard the phone ring, the zoom call go on the dog, the owner trying to end a a conversation, it caused the dog to have these reactions Mm -hmm. so much so that the owner was taking her meetings in the bathroom or in the hallway of her building. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And so for, for this particular case, I mean, I ended up saying, you need to teach your dog. No, we need to teach the dog. It's not okay. And if that means after that, it's followed up by a punisher to get her to stop. So this habit is finished, then that's what we need to do. So now today was two weeks later. We were on a one hour Zoom call. The dog slept on the dog bed the entire time. Didn't even get up. The dog was asleep. I have a picture of her on my phone. It was hilarious. And the owner said to me, so since the two weeks uh, from two weeks ago to today, I've only had to use the Punisher one time, which was a pet corrector. Mm -hmm. And I only needed to tell her to cool it. That was the phrase she decided to use. So we were saying cool it to kind of mean like you're done. That's it. That's enough. And she said, I've had to use that on its own four times uh, in the past two weeks. And it's not what we want to do for our clients. Like I, I, I want to make sure I'm making that clear. So I don't want like people thinking, Oh, I could just do this. 
Like this was a, a, one of those unique and difficult cases. And the owner works from home, is on Zoom calls all day. So we had to do something because it was affecting everyone's lifestyle. Mm-hmm. But like this is a, a particular case where, okay, we stopped all those crazy loops. We stopped everything with that maybe inexperienced owner who was doing her best. And now the dog is able to settle and relax while she's on calls, not having to feel like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, I have to do this. This is my job. This is my job. This is my job during this situation. Now her, like now it's your job is like, go settle on your mat and just hang out there. It's fine. You know, so I think it's, I think that's important because I agree with what you're saying. Like, okay, maybe, you know, maybe they're the, the person is, is, less experienced, but at the same time, those are the people we're going into the homes to work with. And I was going to bring up with the studies thing, and you can maybe elaborate on this, but I was just thinking about studies while Vinny, what to kind of what Vinny's point was, what I find most interesting is not just the 50 dogs on one side and the 50 dogs on the other side, but Who's the trainer? What's their experience level? Were they two different trainers with one set of dogs versus another? Was it the same trainer? And what, again, what was that person's experience level? Because if, if, you know, Steph and I went to compete against each other in agility, who's kicking whose ass? Steph would just, you know, like, like, right. And, and, but that goes to my point though, is that she has way more experience mm-hmm. than so, so like that, that's where I think sometimes the studies are questionable and, and, you know, it's funny. Um, there was an interview I heard with um, Joe Rosie Heffington, who is um, her program is, um, oh, I'm going to, the, the school of canine science. Um, and she made a good point with studies and say, said, you know, like, like there, everyone's got a cell phone. Like we have all this technology. Why aren't we getting video footage of these studies and seeing the timing of what that trainer's doing, all the things the trainer's doing with all of those dogs. Like we're just seeing the, the end results on a piece of paper, but why not actually see visually let's get the, the, the information on video and see what it looks like. And who is that individual doing those things? Because I, and you know, like, I think that the person's experience is going to matter you know, in, in these things with studies, would you agree with that or? Um, definitely as, as somebody, you know, I, I did graduate work in clinical, clinical animal behavior. So have had put to have had to put together, um, proposals and have looked at a ton of studies. And ultimately there are studies that are, good. And there are studies that are questionable. There are studies that every single study has limitations. So when we are, you know, writing our papers, that's what the discussion is, is for. That's what that section is for in our, in our scientific papers to say, this is what we found. This is the limitations to this work and what needs to be, what follow-up studies need to be done in order to, you know, learn more about the questions that we are asking. So nobody's there saying, you know, yep, this is, you know, dead set. You know, I did this study and this is the way it is. Um, You know, 
we're definitely, we're asking questions. We're trying to learn more. Um, some studies have good methods and some studies, you know, leave a little bit to be desired. And even when, you know, I'm doing scientific paper searches, I'm, yeah, I'm reading the abstract and if it's interesting, then I go right into the methods and let me see their methods and, you know, looking at that and saying, okay, is this something that there's, I feel there's validity in, or are there concerns right off the bat? So um, I think when it comes to studies, yes, they're not all created equal, but ultimately in the scientific field, what we're trying to do is answer questions. We're not trying, like Vinny said, to prove something. We're trying to learn more. So I think that our goal is never to, um, you know, to <laughs> prove ourselves to be right. Um, our goal is learning. And, you know, the scientific community is trying to do that, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And I think where things get heated though is i don't see people talking about the limitations i see the you know there's obviously the two sides and the one side that is heavily science based is just bashing people on the other side over the head with but the science but the science but the science and then when we look into the science sometimes it might not be super strong and then but also it, it's, depends on what the science is because, and then because it also right. depends on the scenario right because again yeah. and i feel like i'm just kind of a reflect like i'm trying to offer a perspective that's different than yours like i agree with you rebecca <laughs> with like almost everything that you're saying a lot of what i'm doing is like devil's advocate because otherwise mm -hmm. i just sat here and was like yeah i agree yeah i agree we wouldn't <laughs> have a podcast so i just want to let you know because you don't know me as well as you know them that like when i'm saying some of this stuff i'm just trying to like Sometimes it's other people's voices coming out of my mouth and I want to hear what you say to that, if that makes it, sense. It makes total sense because it's actually something <laughs> I do all the time with my students. <laughs> okay, okay, um, perfect. I'm always, I'm always trying to play devil's advocate because I think that's the way that you really say, huh, I didn't think about that. Well, maybe there is validity in that argument or, you know, um, my response to Anthony, as far as, you know, his, his case that he mentioned, um, you know, I, in that situation, I've actually been in that situation. Um, I try not to take a lot of BMOD, um, and behavior cases just because that's not, I don't enjoy it. I'll be perfectly honest. Um, I find them frustrating because people generally are um, ill-equipped and in my experience, often unwilling to do what needs to be done in order to accomplish um, the behavior modification a lot of times. And that's not always the case. Again, I don't, I don't take a lot of them, but um, I just, I enjoy agility more than I do <laughs> behavior cases. Um, and so um, I have been in that situation with a dog and me personally, again, my ethical framework was such that I lowered the threshold for that dog um, using medication. So recommended a this dog's on, oh, and actually, yes, this dog's on already. Multiple, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've been, the dog's been on multiple medications. Um, 
you know, so she's been on multiple medications. She's working with the vet behaviorist that I work with. Um, she's worked with a couple of other trainers, you know, and, and that was what, and, and I'm glad you brought that, the medication piece up Mm -hmm. because I think that's very important. And, and again, it goes to show like we have, we've gone through all the steps, all Mm -hmm. the steps, and we're still here. Mm -hmm. And now where do like where do we go ethically Mm -hmm. with this because again not just for the dog but also for the owner and yeah well we can say go ahead well because and that's why because i know like from before it sounds like oh Vinny hates science he doesn't believe in science like i i'm 100 percent a supporter of science and i and i like science and i think it's extremely important i think it's important that we learn more and once we learn more we need to do better but Mm -hmm. i think with these complicated cases, which is like the only time I would be doing like what Anthony's saying, like, I am mm-hmm. not someone that's going to show up to your house day one and be like, this is an electric collar. And this yeah. is a prong collar. And we're going to teach mm-hmm. your dog how to be your, your like, little peasant, and you're the master. And we're going to like, alpha, you know, mm-hmm. like, that's not the way that I'm training. Again, what I was saying before is I'm kind of speaking for other voices that I have in my head. But it's like, you know, I still have clients sometimes that are asking me if it's, if it's right that they're putting their dog's nose in the pee on the floor when they're when they're peeing in the house, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's the type of shit that I'm that I'm dealing with. They're not like looking at these nuanced cases where they're like, would it be right for me to use this tool in this scenario, right? Mm-hmm. And I feel like the studies also don't do that. So so what I was what I'm trying to get to is it's not that I'm anti-science. I think I want to see better studies, and I think mm-hmm. that that should be done. And yep. I think. If studies around tools are done, I think, and this is a, to me, a positive trend that if you look at balanced training, you and, and people that might not know, so balanced trainers that are using aversives intentionally, so prong collars, electric collars, or they're doing things that are punishing the dogs, even their methods are way more positive based or thoughtful than say like 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago. So these people are using these tools in a way, the majority of them that are nuanced and thoughtful. They're thoughtfully Mm -hmm. using this. You know, I've learned from some of them and some of it is difficult. Like the the main thing that I always hear of like them being uneducated or it's lazy. Like I've taken electronic collar courses that made my brain hurt because of how deep they're going into when they're using the tools in certain scenarios. You know, so to Anthony's point, I think what happens and then back to our ethics is where I come from as a trainer is that I was extremely R plus science based, you know, clicker trainer right out of Karen Pryor. And I was taking on all anything that I could get. Obviously, if it was something I couldn't deal with, it would go off. But I started noticing that maybe, I don't know, 35% of my clients, I felt like there was just something a little missing just something there that I couldn't grasp um, that I was like, I think this dog might do well with this or that, but I wasn't comfortable doing it because again, I had been taught for an extremely long time, even though I was a crossover trainer for more compulsion based stuff. You know, I saw the dark side of compulsion. Like we could talk about how bad you could like, if it, if you want me to mess up a dog, I'd rather you give me an electric collar than a tree pouch. Even though I said before the treats were messing my lab up, like, you know, it's much easier with an electric collar to destroy a dog for sure. Um, 
but well, I, I think was it, like, it depends on your on your definition of destruction. Well, too. Yeah, well, like completely setting up like superstitious associations and changing that dog for the word, making that dog nervous and shut down. And, you know, like, yeah, but you're right. Like, what do you mean by destruction? Mm -hmm. So I guess what I mean by that is a dog that almost seems like completely flattened, doesn't even enjoy life anymore. And Mm -hmm. is just like constantly wondering when the next time that they're going to be corrected for something is, and they don't even know why it's happening. And they're walking on eggshells for the rest of their life is is what is what i'm talking about so not not to interrupt you but um ethically do you think that that dog there is the same as the dog that anthony was mentioning that was stressed because it was constantly seeking reinforcement like are they i don't know i think that would be hard i like that i guess that'd, that'd be my question to you is like how and this, I posed this question, I think, to Chris uh, P- uh, Paco when he came on is like, how do we me- how do we measure this? Like, how do you measure a dog that was only trained like Anthony's dog situation with like positive reinforcement, but it was like constantly in a state of frustration versus mm-hmm. a dog that's like completely shut down and nervous all the time? I mean, I don't know me personally. I feel like I'd rather be the dog in Anthony's situation mm-hmm. uh, yeah. if I had to choose. I had to choose. And again, that's why, despite the way I probably sound in this podcast right now, like I probably have people that are like, what the hell? Like Vinny, what is Vinny talking about? But I'm just trying to like show the inverse. I'm being a little bit more because, because of where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I feel like it's that gray area in the middle that, that I don't see studied in a way that I would like to see. Like I, I would, I would like even, you know, like to what Anthony said is who's doing the training, right? Like it's almost like you wish not to create like a battle, but it's like get your best trainer from each side and let's let's study. And then, but like, what are we studying? Because I feel like there's always something at stake and like, what is that at stake? Like, so, you know, ethically for this is like, what's worse, the overweight dog that sits in the window and its best, its favorite part of the day is barking at the mailman or the dog that's hiking in the woods with an electronic collar on. And like maybe gets stimmed one time when it chases a deer, right? Mm-hmm. Like which one would you rather be? Like you chase the deer oh, and you get a little yeah. zap on your neck, but you get to run around for six hours or you have to sit in a windowsill and you never even get to know what the woods feels like. And it's not saying that that's a dichotomy that has to play out. And it's like either your dog is running off leash hiking in the woods or it's like sitting in a window. But like when I see, like when I walk my dogs every day and I look around and I never see, I see them all sitting in the windows all my neighbor's dogs and I don't see them walking them. There's maybe a handful that I pass out on walks or I see them behind an electric fence or sitting in a window, you know, and it's, it's, you know, so how do you define what is aversive and what is abuse? And that's why me, I see it as more than just a tool at this point. Yeah. I I think this is, again, going back to what I teach, um, is livestock production. So um, one of the questions I just recently posed to my students was, um, right now, you probably are not familiar with avian uh, influenza, but it is... Oh, trust um, me, the egg prices? I'm I'm all up on that. Yes, yes, okay, the egg prices. So you gotta spend like $9 to get the (laughs) the gains over here, getting no protein. So one of the reasons, one of the reasons why you have to spend $9 a dozen on your eggs is because we've lost millions and millions and millions of 
birds, um, egg layers, chickens um, with avian influenza. This was so, your fault, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, thanks. No. <laughs> <laughs> Rebecca's got um, like a thousand eggs frozen underneath her house right now. <laughs> She's stocked up. <laughs> Steph's going to really appreciate those eggs that I bring her now. Oh, yeah. Um, so um, I actually, um, my chickens have access to the outdoors because, again, going back to innate behaviors, I feel it is important that the birds have access to do those natural behaviors. Your example of the dogs running in the woods. Um, and off-leash hiking. However, I also, um, one thing that we would all generally agree is that keeping animals free of disease is ethical, right? And so my chickens that are, have access to the outdoors also potentially can get sick. Chickens that are housed indoors are not going to come in contact. If you're in a shower in, shower out, which when you go to the grocery store and you buy those eggs, you do not walk into a chicken barn. I've been in um, commercial chicken barns. They are spotless and you literally have to shower in. It's a shower in, shower out facility. Really, really high level of biosecurity. So what is better? The birds that are potentially going to get eaten by hawks, fox, raccoons, but can scratch on the ground and um, may get influ avian influenza because they can come in contact with wild birds or the birds that are being kept in a much more biosecure area. The problem is, again, it comes down to ethical frameworks. You know, what do you put value in? How do you determine what is a life worth living. And I always, um, my coworker and I always talk about this. If I am um, put on life support, pull the plug. <laughs> I, <laughs> I am okay with that. Um, but as humans, we can't even agree. Can we sell that. your organs? <laughs> yeah, I'm on, <laughs> no, can't sell on the them. black market <laughs> so that we can afford eggs. <laughs> <laughs> you can't sell them. And I'm an organ donor, but pull the plug, use my organs. If One I'm of your kidneys, I could probably get enough eggs for like half a year. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. I think this is going on the bloopers too. <laughs> you get you my point. Live, like, you live in the country. You can't get a couple of fucking chickens and put them in your yard video. I mean, like, what the fuck? Uh, <laughs> anyway, go on. Anyway, yeah, let's not even. But, let's not but my, my point is, you know, it, I don't know how you guys feel about, about that, you know, either the chicken situation or even your own mortality. You know, are you the type of person like my coworker who, you know, is like dead set? No, do not pull the plug. Just keep me plugged in. You know, I want, I don't care if I'm a vegetable, just keep me plugged in. Don't let me die where I'm saying that's not a life worth living. Unplug me. Um, and that's just differences in how we view quality of life. And I think that's the same thing as the dog. So yeah, while, that's actually, uh, that, that's oh, actually, oh, okay. That's actually a, um, a good point because I was just thinking, as you said that, who decides 
what is considered ethical. And so like that word's we thrown do. out a <laughs> lot. No, no, no. But, but what I mean is in, uh, I, yes, I agree with you. But mm-hmm. what I mean is like in, in, especially coming from the positive reinforcement space as a trainer, that word's thrown out a lot. Mm-hmm. And what, they're like what that group's view of ethical might be is different than maybe someone from the balanced community. Mm -hmm. You know, like I always use the example when I worked for, uh, when I managed this company um, that I worked for my, the owner of the company used to say, I pay, I I pay you well. And I used to say, well, your definition of being paid well is, is different Mm -hmm. than mine. Mm -hmm. And so, so I think about this as you're saying about ethics, like, like with my client that I just gave the example, I don't mm-hmm. want to have to teach my client, you know, step into their like space to apply pressure to mm-hmm. tell the dog that's enough. You're done. Go lay down, etc. But the reality is for that particular case, while being on multiple medications from the veterinary behaviorist, working with a few different trainers in the past, doing all this training on their own, all this research they're at this point. So isn't that the most ethical thing? And so like for me as a professional, it is because now, like I said, two weeks later, here's what the result is. The dog's able to now hang out in the living room with the owner, just laying on the dog bed, sleeping while she's able to do her meetings out of the bathroom now. Mm -hmm. Right. But for maybe other professionals, that isn't ethical. That's horrible you know, I would probably be classified as a horrible trainer now because of deciding for that one particular case, this is what I felt was going to be ethically the best thing mm-hmm. for that dog and that owner, the, the, both of those individuals in the situation that they're in. And, and I so, think that, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say, I think that's one of the challenges of dog training is that you yeah. are deciding what is the best thing that you can do? What is the most ethical thing that you can do in that given situation? Um, and it's funny because it's, it's as never you... going to be a hundred percent agreed on by everybody. It's funny. I was just going to say that I, as someone once told me, the only thing two trainers can agree on is what the third one's doing wrong. <laughs> that's, <laughs> you know? that's a good one. That's a good one. But, oh, it's but, the then, truth, but it's the truth it's, though. It when is. you think about it, because you're going to like, I know I'll have a lot of people hear this and he, oh my God, I can't believe Anthony recommended this for that particular case, even though we exhausted so many options. And yet someone's going to say that they could do it better or diff- or do it totally differently and more ethically, et cetera, et cetera, without actually working on that case. Cause it's just mm-hmm. easy to say. But then this is why it goes beyond methods and tools is because like in, in Rebecca's um, scenario with the chickens, You wouldn't say that you're like, I'm training the chickens by like attacking some of them with hawks. Like, no, getting attacked by a hawk is like a potential consequence of them being free reign. And you're Mm -hmm. kind of making that decision for them. And I guess that's where it's tricky because everything that we do has potential consequences. Like we're all deciding to sit and talk on this podcast together right now and we're going to post it. And some people might be listening right now and they may be pissed. Like they might not like it. They might talk shit about it. Or you might post something on Instagram and then someone leaves a nasty comment that makes you upset. Or you get in your car and you drive to work because you need to work so that you can get money. But like people, you know, 
50 and younger, their highest rate of dying is driving in a car. Like, but you know those risks and you take those risks in order to get, because you're like, okay, this, you know, my risk outweighs or like the benefits outweigh the risk. So I'm deciding to choose that with the dogs. We kind of have to decide that. And that's where I think it gets tricky. And then back to Anthony's scenario is where it gets complicated is if someone got the same dog or maybe someone got like a really high drive some type of like a border collie and lives in an apartment and doesn't walk it and doesn't do anything with it and leaves it in a crate all day and then when it takes it out one hour a day the dog barks at it because the freaking dog has had no life and then they're saying no and shooting the same pet corrector at the dog so it's the Mm -hmm. same exact training method same exact tool different dog, different scenario. Now my ethics, I'm like, holy shit, that person is an asshole. When Mm -hmm. Anthony tells me about his scenario, I'm like, this doesn't bother me because this person is here. They work from home. They're, they're trying to do everything they can. They've trained the dog for years or months. At least they've spent all this money. They give the dog all the proper outlets. I'm assuming that. And then now they're like, you know what, now I need to do this thing. And I think that's what becomes complicated. And it is pushed even more by Instagram and instant gratification and and Facebook and like people right now that like they see just the problem as like my dog is barking and I heard Anthony say I could say no and spray it with a pet corrector and that will solve it there's so many more late like if Anthony told me that like oh yeah anyone that comes to me and their dog is barking like I just go straight to a pet corrector and and spray it I'd be like Anthony's a, a shit trainer like that's mm-hmm. my view of him but when he just explained what he said, I don't think he's a shit trainer. Like, I don't know about you guys, but I wasn't like, oh, wow, what a piece of shit. I didn't even know, like, this is the guy I'm doing a podcast with. Like, no, I feel nothing about it. But then what gets hard is like, because everyone just takes a snapshot and like chooses sides and then the sides are chosen by like what tools are in your, you know, in your training pouch, then like he would be lumped right in. Like he's, for all I know, he's a compulsive trainer now. He just used positive punishment. He's saying no, yelling at the dog and spraying it with an air canister. You know what I mean? And that's why I feel straight like away from the dog, not at the dog. You straight just it right in between the back of their head, right? The right dog. in the back. Right in the back. No. Want to so, we were not okay. So he's still so he's still taking a, a you know Lima <laughs> approach to that. Um but do you see what I mean? And I think that's what's Absolutely. so hard is like if they did a study on pet correctors, like, well, what scenario are we talking about? And then what's at stake? Like, what is the dog missing out on? You know what I mean? Like, and, and again, that's where some of these things don't affect, they don't affect the majority of my clients. Like, I'll be honest with you. Like I've, I've, I barely, I, I there's probably on my one hand, I can couch, count how many, how many clients I've even thought about using like something like an electric collar with, it's not like I'm going around and I'm slapping them on. But if I train a thousand dogs and I were to, in a specific scenario, put an electric collar on one of those in a thousand, now I need to be an unscientific, lazy, balanced trainer that doesn't know anything because I decide and I have to lose all my certifications and say that I can't, I can't consider myself a positive art trainer anymore. And that's what's so hard. And I think people, you know, people, when they listen to these podcasts, they, they message us. So I know it's out there. I know they're they're wondering and they get these clients that are difficult these dogs and they wonder and then when people wonder and they're not able to find out because they're scared to then maybe they don't do anything or maybe they do things on their own and they'd be better off if they learned a little bit beforehand you know what i just want to say to that um is it's making me think about 
kind of your question before, Rebecca, about where you are now as a professional. And it just makes me think about how not only me, but just like even other trainers who have have messaged Vinny and I about these conversations that have changed or approached things differently. And I just, I think it's interesting because when you're just thinking in one specific way, sometimes you're limited on certain things that you can or, or can't do, or, you know, you almost feel like you're not maybe doing it correctly or not good enough because it's not working. And then sometimes those clients end up leaving and going to someone else, maybe who trains like you, or maybe who trains totally opposite of you and is going to do something way more harsh than Mm -hmm. what you were planning on doing. And then, so then that's like an ethical dilemma for me Mm -hmm. because I sometimes sit there and say to myself, okay, so if I get a case and I did all these things and it's not working now, what do we do? So like, I'll give the example I gave in the episode with, with uh, Michael Shikashio. So I had a client who had an extremely reactive dog and the dog is aggressive. She has a bite history and we were doing all the things. The only thing was that the owners were very adamant about, we are not medicating our dog. We are, we refuse to try medication to address this issue. So I can't do anything about that. And now I'm, I have an ethical dilemma. Mm -hmm. We've tried everything using positive reinforcement based Mm -hmm. techniques it isn't working. We've been working together for six months or so. Do I now say, I'm sorry, I can't do anything else because you don't want to medicate. And I'm not saying if you do that as a professional, that's wrong. That's fine. If that's what you feel, because you just feel like the dog needs to be medicated. There's nothing else I can do here. Or do you decide, okay, now I need to make, I need to make another decision for myself. So with that case, I ended up deciding to put a head halter on the dog and then put a prong collar on the dog with a a little tab leash. So we were walking around the head halter and we were using the prong collar um, when we saw the trigger. And within three lessons, we went from having to have reactions at 500 feet away from a dog within three lessons to be about 75 feet away from dogs without a reaction. In fact, we weren't even holding the tablet prong collar anymore. She was actually looking at the trigger, looking back at us for reinforcement and play. And again, that was three lessons, right? Compared to like six months worth of work that the owners were willing to spend money on because we didn't even get to that part about, well, what if the owner, you know, can't afford that, Mm -hmm. but that's a whole nother conversation. But so that like, that goes to like the ethical dilemma piece Mm -hmm. a little bit. What, what do we do? We tried, we tried Mm -hmm. everything. So now, now what, now, what do we do here? So I don't even remember, I I went off on a tangent, so I don't remember (laughs) the point I was, the point that I was honestly making, but 
but it, it had something to do with being ethical and 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 ethical beliefs and stuff. Uh, but but yeah, well, I just I think about that a little bit as like as a mm-hmm. professional, what is like what do you consider to be ethical? And and why are you also judging what I consider to be ethical as wrong and that the way you think ethics are is correct? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, no. and, and I think this kind of goes to also the question in the very beginning about about like the different type of methodologies, because obviously it's not like people who train a certain way think they're doing anything wrong. They love dogs just as much as the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think sometimes just... I think as far as ethics go, I think sometimes we have to look at like the bigger picture. If I said to that client, I have nothing else for you. We just have to keep doing what we're doing. At some point, I'm going to lose them and they're going to go to someone else who's going to maybe apply, you know, something much more harsh and maybe, maybe cause issues, maybe not, you know, like that client, I was their fourth trainer, I believe. And they did use tools on that dog before they came to me. And then we took the tools off because it wasn't working. And then I said, okay, let me go back to the drawing board. And this is what I felt was the most ethical thing for that particular client, that particular case, you know? And so I think to myself, was it more ethical for me as a professional to decide, okay, I'm going to do this because I know this dog. I know what the dog's capable of. I know the clients. I feel comfortable doing this and applying this. Versus just them hiring some random person and it may work or it may be way worse than what I'm going to do. Yeah. And ultimately the answer to that is. That long winded question (laughs) wouldn't shut the fuck up. (laughs) Ultimately ethics are not black and white and there is no easy answer to that question. And that question is a similar question that I pose to my students, um, a lot of whom are aspiring veterinarians. And so I give them a scenario that, you know, okay, you are a practitioner and you have a client come in with puppies and they want the dogs to be doctor cropped. And you do not believe that to be ethical. What do you do? Do you do the procedure? Do you um, do it? A lot of vets will um, do those procedures that they do not feel are ethical because of the fear of the person doing it themselves and not doing it properly. So it's the same situation that you're concerned about with your client going to somebody else and you you don't know what's going to happen there. So ultimately, that's a decision that everybody has to make for themselves. You know, where, you know, what, what are you, what do you feel is the, the most ethical thing? And again, our framework is going to change, whether it's the lie or the murder or, you know, like it's, it's, it depends on the situation. Um, and it's not necessarily going to be the same every time, um, And I can't say that uh, I necessarily agree with you or don't agree with you. Vinny may agree with you or not agree with you. I don't always agree with Stephanie. Stephanie doesn't always agree with me. That's kind of the challenge. But I think it's super important 
when we have these ethical dilemmas that we understand why somebody, their thought process behind it, because then perhaps we can be a little bit more creative in coming to, you know, that kind of gray area solution. Um, but ultimately, it's one of the reasons I think that we have so much mental burnout, so much anxiety and stress in a lot of these animal related careers is because I don't think when you signed up to be a dog trainer, um, or a lot of people sign up to be vets, that they're necessarily thinking that they are going to come, they're going to be faced with so many of these situations, like the one you just mentioned, that are so nuanced, that are so um, conflicted, what do you do? And, you know, I think that's, that's the, my purpose of starting this conversation with my students is because I want them to start thinking about these hard questions before they're out into the world and they have to make them for the, themselves. And then with dogs, <clears throat> what do you guys, because part of my ethical framework is like a gut feeling. So it's hard to quantify it, but mm -hmm. whether it's pulling on a dog's leash. And I, and I think that's why, even though it's ugly and not everyone would agree, but I will intentionally watch videos of training that I definitely do not agree with or support. And even though it might be upsetting, it helps me see mm -hmm. what dogs look like when they're experiencing certain things. Because, and it's clear to me that some people don't, I mean, and it's a good thing, but, you know, I've seen personally dogs corrected in ways that like, I can't get it out of my head. Like I, I see it. Like it's like, it's just stained there. And I've done things in the past, you know, when I first started 10, 12, 13 years ago that I regret and I think about and I learn from and I go, whoa, like that was, that was some dark shit that I was being taught to do by trainers at the mm -hmm. time. So the hard thing is like, ethically you can't be like okay like today we're going to show you how to like create a severe escape avoidance behavior in a dog so you know what it looks like when a dog is like frantically trying to save its life in a training scenario right that we can't we can't show that to someone but it's clear that some people have luckily never experienced that or seen that because like I've brought this up before, like I'll get shit on my Instagram because I have a, my dog in a flat collar and I like pull against it with like some type of pressure. They're like, why are you yanking the dog's neck? And in my head, I'm like, that's what you define as a yank. Like, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I'll be clear again, if I were to put one pound of pressure on a dog's neck and it hit the floor shaking ethically I think one pound of pressure on that dog's neck is too much right mm -hmm. like I would let go of the leash and let that dog run away in fear to wherever it needs to go to feel safe 
But if I have a 75 pound pit bull that's chasing a squirrel and I pull against it with 40 pounds of pressure and it's kind of looking at me like, oh, you're getting me like I'm going this way. I don't that doesn't register the same, you know, and it's like, again, it's not it's hard to put a label or a number or like a pressure point like it's because it's it shifts from dog to dog to dog. And I think that's why understanding body language is so important of like seeing what a dog how a dog feel like body language is the number one way you could tell how a dog is feeling because they can't tell you right so it's valuable when deciding to Mm -hmm. do these things like I've put head halters on dogs and within seconds taken them off because I just saw some, like, again, I don't know how to describe it. I just get this gut feeling. And I'm like, that's not how it's supposed to look, you know? And then I have to figure something else out. So what are your thoughts on that? Again, with this, like, the shifting, like, it's like, that's what's so hard for me. Like, in the beginning, when you're like, what do you believe? And I was like, I don't know what I believe. It's because mm-hmm. it does change. Like, it's hard mm-hmm. for me to just say, hey, my name is Vinny Viola. And, like, this is exactly how... I feel right now because it could shift from dog to dog to situation to situation. So um, at first you said that you, um, a lot of it is a feeling. And as somebody who, again, I always, I always say I'm a scientist, but I'm also a very emotional person. Um, So I do like that, um, you know, dichotomy of, of both the, the logical and the emotional. And I, I feel I operate with both, but when you're saying a lot of it is a feeling, I think what it actually is, is you are looking at it from an animal behavior perspective. You're adjusting based on the reaction that you're seeing in the dog, which is based in science. It's based in animal behavior. So, um, yeah, how much how much of that feeling is actually just instinctual animal behavior knowledge? Um, I think I think it's probably a lot. You're probably not going up to that dog and just like I feel like Fluffy needs a, a cookie. Oh yeah, or that's definitely you know? not my style. Yeah. <laughs> but I think I think um, I think it's a little bit more scientific maybe than you're giving yourself credit for. As far as the situational, you use the example of the pit bull versus a small dog. I'll go back to my docking example. So me personally, I do have two docked dogs, um, but my ethical framework, I don't support docking in dogs. Uh, And I don't support docking in dogs because of the research that shows they use their tails for balance, they use their tails for communication, there is a purpose to the dog's tail. Um, So, and I don't feel the risk of tail injuries outweighs the benefit of having a tail. So going back to, again, that risk assessment in creating our ethical frameworks. However, in my sheep, I do believe that it is a good, solid practice with the animal's best health and welfare in mind to dock those sheep and that they do not, sheep don't use their tails in the same way that um, that uh, dogs do. And on top of it, leaving them with their tails 
is definitely a sanitation concern and we can have fly strike. There can be a lot of problems that come from sheep being left with their tails. So I am in full support of docking sheep. Now, a different species, we can talk about docking in pigs. So pigs are frequently docked. And the reason why pigs are docked is because tail biting is problematic in pigs when they're kept in confinement. Now, the issue with the tail biting is it's often done because they are lacking enrichment. Um, so we can manage that. Uh, and tail biting is much less of a problem. So here we have docking in three different species, and I take a stand against docking in dogs, and I am fairly strong against docking in pigs because we can manage that, and that particular docking in pigs, um, in my opinion, again, is a, uh, a practice that is done to basically um, counteract poor management of those animals. However, in our sheep, I cannot physically clean wipe that sheep's butt every time it goes to the bathroom when they're living out on the field. So to me, docking is uh, ethically acceptable practice in that species. So again, um, it's not black and white. I think it's really important to look at each case, say what is going to create the highest quality of life for that animal and really question, you know, are we using a tool? Are we using docking um, to cover up? Could we do something else? Could we do something that uh, would help to prevent the problem. And I think that's the perfect analogy for dog training is, you know, there are trainers out there that just immediately go to adversives. And now well, I'm going to get you, it from all the dog people I, comparing I don't know if you adversive dog training to, to docking. Oh, I don't know if you, you froze on, did you freeze on anyone else's end? Cause she froze on mine. Me too. Yeah. Oh, okay. Not on mine. Just, I didn't see it, but yeah. Oh, could you just repeat that just in case, in case it was cut off. I'm sorry. So what I was saying is not that I'm necessarily comparing docking dogs to, you know, adversive dog training, but you know, you have that particular practice of docking, um, which, you know, is, is really unsupported in dogs. And then we have, you know, other ways to manage the problem that docking is going to alleviate in pigs and no real way to get around it in the sheep. Um, and so I think that that's a good kind of um, analogy to dog training in that, you know, it's not black and white. We may have to do things at times that, you know, if in per perfect circumstances, maybe, you know, um, we wouldn't necessarily do. And I think when that happens, just like when I'm docking sheep, it's my obligation to make sure that I'm doing it in as humane a way as possible. So, you know, again, do I use um, 
completely 100% positive methods with my dogs. I think anybody that says that doesn't understand how um, operant conditioning actually works. Because when I withhold a treat, I can cause frustration to a dog. I can cause stress to a dog. So I think that's really important to remember. And um, we have to adjust based on what we see in the animal in front of us. And not every situation is going to be the same. And then, yes, Stephanie. I was, well, I, maybe you should go. <laughs> I was going to take sort of a left turn. I just kind of- No, you're good, to, you're good. I just wanted to kind of tie this back to like, to new trainers and like how you get mm -hmm. involved because and I, this question is really for, for all of you, but um, mostly for Anthony and Vinny, because I, I know that Rebecca and I have a, a different experience, but like, how do you, how do you navigate the world as you're just getting into it? Like, how do you know what's right and wrong? And like, what, what guides you one way or the other? And I think Anthony, I, I think your story would be really helpful and educational for everybody because I've watched your growth over the last five years and how much you've changed and evolved. And, and I'm curious to know, is it that one example that you talk about with the, um, with the dog and the head halter? Like, is that the moment that changed your, your thinking or like, what was it that, that percolated all that for you? So, so first to answer your first part of the question, um... <laughs> Say again. I said, sorry, I pulled a Vinny. Oh, you pulled a Vinny. I, I didn't hear it on my end. <laughs> so I'll have to remember all those questions there. Um, so to answer your first part of the question in terms of kind of how. So my story is kind of funny in that when I was looking into dog training programs, I wanted to do something that had some structure to it. And I picked the one that had the nicest website because I thought it looked like I can't. This is wait. what we're not, we're not telling the students this. We're not telling the students this. He likes shiny objects. <laughs> you have to understand. You have to understand though. So I am a person who I, and it's so funny because of how I changed in so many ways in the way I think in general, but um, I, I am a person with like in a, from a business standpoint, when I saw some of the websites, it's like, what kind of garbage bullshit website, like not nonsense is this? Like you made that last night, you know, type of thing. <laughs> so like, you have to understand the it's place. It's something I would working. make. <laughs> you have to understand like where I was working before and, and like what my background was before. So, so, <laughs> so like I picked this nice website because I thought it was the nicest website. It's like, oh, that's. That's where I want to go because I did all this research and then I researched the person on the side. I was like, oh, this person has like a popular like following on YouTube. And then, oh, this person had a TV show. And um, so I started watching the videos. I liked the messaging and everything. It was all positive reinforcement based. And, um, and that was then how I applied to their program. And, and what was even more interesting that I went to their first ever, um, like launching of their program. So they had actually never even ran it before. So it wasn't even like there was any way to compare it, you know, so, 
<laughs> like really I threw like I mean like when you really think about it like I really was taking a risk when you think about this like first I went off the fact that the website was shiny and sparkly you know and nice looking and didn't look like a piece of garbage that you just made last minute you know so and then they didn't even have the program so uh that was that's how I started um and you know I I, I guess Part of it was over time, as I continued to grow as a professional, what I always, I always find it funny in, in not even just profession, but in life in general, you meet people or start learning things at a particular time that then leads you to somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And I, I was learning a lot of things from other positive trainers and everything was great. I mean, I absorbed everything. I, I loved all of it. I use it all the time. And then as I continued to grow, I got to a point where I was kind of feeling like, is that all, you know, like, I know, like I have more to learn, but I feel like every time I take a webinar, a class, go to a conference, it's the same thing over and over. And I just felt like there were things that were missing. And um, I had a couple of difficult cases that really got me thinking because the majority of my work is working with aggression and behavior issues. And it kind of got me thinking a little bit. And then I started... At that same time, actually, I got into maybe the year before or like six months or a year before I was doing agility. And I started understanding through agility, the concept of of pressure and applying pressure, stepping into the dog's space to get them to go around the jump, for example. Mm -hmm. Right. And like just putting applying a little bit of that pressure into their space to get them to move off. And, you know in a lot of positive reinforcement circles that applying pressure is extremely aversive. And some will even say it's not necessary or doesn't exist. But, you know, if we look at like even farm animals and, and it exists everywhere in, in environment. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, so anyway, so uh, and then about that same time, also I, I got into sheep herding by mistake because I went, I was planning on getting a Kelpie that this farmer had that didn't want to herd. And I was like, oh, well, I need a helper dog that I could use for like work. And I ended up sending the dog back because she's resource guarding me towards my other dog. She was obsessed with me. So I was like, I don't want to live with that. Uh, Didn't want to deal with that at the time. And then when I dropped the dog off, I said to the person, the farmer, who's now my friend, I said, hey, could we see how my Kelpie is on sheep? I didn't know anything about any of that. And so he tested him. He instinct tested him. He's like, Hey, if you want to go at this, this dog is pretty good. Like you have a shot at doing some stuff. And then I just kind of got into it because it was a really a big relationship builder to be very honest with, with my dog, um, because we had a lot of issues uh, together for some of his neurological issues that I didn't know about at the time. And so anyway, um, the sport world actually is what started opening up, uh, opening me up to seeing other concepts being applied because it didn't feel as dirty or horrible as 
it was explained to me in, uh, you know, other programs or courses that I was taking. And then um, I started really like getting into sheep herding and understanding how aversive it could be. And I was learning from really some really good trainers who were balanced and were meeting me where I was comfortable. And they really made me start understanding things or being willing to be more open and learn uh, different methodologies. And now I really, as a professional, I want to learn from anyone, regardless if it's something I agree with or not, because I want to know what you're doing. I want to know how you feel it's effective because maybe there are things I can take from you. Maybe I, maybe I can only take little things from you, but I can take something, you know, I, I, and I think, I, I think like that's that. So that's basically, that's where I, how I kind of got into like where I've changed as a professional. And um, so my advice in terms of training is, I chose to go to the program I went to because it was positive reinforcement based. And I honestly didn't know at the time there were different methods, but it sounded the nicest in terms of um, the treatment of, of animals. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and I think for me as a foundation, that was the best thing I could have done. And I think like at, you know, Vinny's story is the total opposite. Like he said before, he was on the total opposite side of the spectrum, right? And so like, and when we think about it, like every, we kind of all now have kind of come together in the middle of, well, we have questions, mm -hmm. you know? So, um, so yeah, I don't know if I answered all your questions, but I think I answered two of them. You did, you did. I mean, I mostly heard that I changed your world. So, <laughs> yes, it is true. And let it be known on record, it is true. Stephanie Rayner was a big influence in Anthony D. Marinus's life. You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> no, I think I think that was perfect. I guess that was great. That was great. <laughs> I guess my only other question if I, was, if I was playing a little bit devil's advocate is like and let it be known that I've like never had any other job besides dog training but so I could be completely wrong about this but I feel like when you're new in the workforce like you need experience on your resume to get a job so like without that experience like like where do you even go how do you get started without somebody like being like lending their hand and being like follow me let me show you the way like do you know what yeah, I mean? I think that, yeah. Yeah. I think that depends on the person because for me, I knew I was going to start a business. Um, like I was willing to be mentored and learn from people. And I did uh, for a couple of years, but I was still running my business during that time. Mm -hmm. But that was just me. That's what I wanted to do. Not everyone's going to do that. Um and sometimes you might get lucky, like with a student uh, of yours, Steph, and, and someone who, you know, she had worked for me for a few years. Like we, you and I both saw her potential in two different areas. You saw her potential in agility. I saw her potential to be a really good trainer for pet owners. And we both approached her and said, hey, you're really talented at this. 
you know, if you want to get into this, we can help you. And she kind of was lucky in that sense. But, you know, I think. It's interesting because I think the four of us, the thing that we have in common to some extent Mm. is luck. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Steph and I were kind of born into animals and, um, you know, Vinny and you, Anthony, uh, kind of, you know, stumbled your way onto where you're at now. But I think ultimately it's that desire to learn more that is driving all four of us. And um, I think that's hugely important to growing. And I think to speak to what you said before, too, about learning from everyone. And Vinny, you even mentioned about, um, you know, watching things that are uh, completely against your ethical framework. I think it's actually important. And I actually encourage my students to um, not shy away from people that have a different ethical framework than them to question, you know, why do they believe what they believe? Um, You know, and that really sets us up to when we have those conflicts to better resolve them. If we are more open to being understanding, not necessarily agreeing, but understanding where somebody is coming from. And then again, hoping to, um, to ultimately kind of, um, you know, resolve, resolve the conflict or, or do what we can to not be in such conflict about, about our ethical frameworks when they don't meet up. But as far as my, um, my kind of the thing that I keep thinking about is basically, um, you know, in vet medicine, it's um, primum no nocere. So first do no harm. And I think that that to me is the message that I would want to send to the next generation, those people, you know, Steph mentioned, how do you get the experience? Um, You know, we're all at a point now where we are learning and gleaning and trying to grow. But I think the first thing, because we are dealing with animals' lives, that the first thing we need to remember is, is first do no harm, just like in, in vet medicine, just like in the medical community, you know, that to me is, is the most important thing. Um, and then grow from there. Not, not saying that we can, can, you know, do harm after that, but, you know, play it safe, go with, um, you know, the, the, mentors that are going to do the least amount of harm and then continue to grow your your mindset and your experience I want to also say that luck favors the prepared sometimes so just so that we don't make everyone Mm. feel like we all got lucky and if you don't get lucky (laughs) fuck you you don't get to become a dog trainer um because you know I started a little bit differently than Anthony I basically for the first three years I just like shadowed a lady's like two or three of her classes a week and I didn't even get paid Mm -hmm. like I just went to her puppy class and I like cleaned the pee on the floor like Mm -hmm. that was my job like I cleaned the pee I picked up the poop and I would help clients with like some of the basic things um 
I brought my own dog to her and I'd been doing tons of training because I was obsessed with it. So I guess that would be like my thing is if you're trying, like just get it. If you're truly obsessed with it, you kind of have to be obsessed with it if you want to do it. I don't think you're going to like be able to like half-ass it because I mean, you guys know, like I made tons of sacrifices, like from, you know, I went to college for psychology. I was working at a psychiatric hospital and I basically like, through like not threw away but I was decided to take this other path where I was making almost nothing um and then I had to work a bunch of weird odd jobs that I would have never wanted to work like like just different little tiny part-time jobs to piece together so that I could make myself available random days and times to work basically for no money but then also make a good enough amount of money to survive you know um but by being obsessed with it, I was constantly doing it and people noticed that I was constantly doing it. And then the lady whose classes I was taking asked me if I wanted to shadow her. So like there are ways I think like getting out there and doing it and doing it is is a way I would start, even if it's volunteering, like most shelters will let you volunteer. You know, if you say, hey, I want to volunteer and like you'll just be work- walking the dogs, you know, or, or cleaning up or just getting your hands on dogs. Um, aside from just your own. I mean, training your own dog is great, but it's only going to get you so far because you're going to be a really good trainer of your dog. I think that's, I think that's great advice. And um, I love that you mentioned that um, when I say lucky, I don't mean lucky, like, oh, we just all kind of fell into it. No, we're all lucky. Don't worry. Definitely. (laughs) 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 But I mean, lucky Maybe, maybe lucky is a, is a bad, we're all driven to yeah. continue to grow. Um, and that we have, we have sought that out. Um, yeah, yeah, I think yeah. that's, that's probably better, a better description. There's a good book. I don't know if you ever read the book Outliers. It reminded me of it a lot. It like, it's all no. about that. It's all about how like most of the people that are most successful, like all had these like crazy scenarios, like Bill Gates, there was like the first library that had a computer in it was like in his neighborhood. Like, it's like all yeah. like it breaks down like different stories like that, like all of like many of the greats had these like, and then I think there was like a thing on hockey players, like most of the best hockey players are born in like January or February. And the reason for that is because uh-huh. like, they tended to be like eight months older than everyone else and like from a really young age like they were the best on like the little league team so then they were doing the summer camps and then like it just traveled with them so like if you look at like hockey players like like a great percentage of them are like Jenny like their early early birthdays but it's just interesting because like yeah like unfortunately I feel like in life there are like a lot of the things that led to the success that I have were like never really plans. I think that, I think that's what you kind of mean. It's like you, like I prepared and we did the work and we were training. And then like these like weird scenarios came up where like, you know, like in my scenario, the, the lady who was working for the woman I eventually worked for, like just quit like weeks before I showed up for class. You know what I mean? Like I didn't prepare, I didn't plan that. Like that just was like a stroke of luck. And if that didn't happen, she would have never needed someone to help her, you know? So unfortunately there is, you know, a little bit of that, but if you start branching out, then I feel like there's more opportunities, especially nowadays with social media and Instagram and all the different ways that you could be linked with people. Um, You could be mentoring with someone, not even in your state now, Mm -hmm. which is, which is. And maybe that's it. Maybe it's not even so much that, 
were any luckier or Bill Gates was any luckier. It's just that there are opportunities around us all. We're just yeah. seizing those opportunities. Wow, this is turning into like a life, a life coaching uh, <laughs> talk. Where do we go in from like ethics <laughs> and like frozen eggs and then like goats? I think it's a really important topic to talk about, especially for people that are new in their careers or again, you know, people that are seeking, um, seeking a career in dog training or honestly, a lot of this can be applied to a variety of different careers in animals. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, I think. And it's then, good. and then, cause I want to keep this going and then maybe you can help me and then we'll wrap this up. Cause I know you're trying to wrap oh. it up. But I'm not going to let you because if I don't say what I'm going to say now, okay. I'm going to be thinking about it at two o'clock in the morning. And I'm like, God damn it. I didn't say that That's shit. True. So no, put it here. No one's even, no one's can, even, you no can one's text even me listening too. this far. No one's even listening this far into uh, this podcast. Rebecca is awake at 4 So you oh, can text her. My God. Okay. I was going to say. I'll be like, Rebecca, round two, you're coming back. This is amazing because. This is amazing because then if he can text you at 2 a.m., he won't have to bother mm-hmm. me. So, yes. No, he, can, he can text me at 2 a.m. I'll be up. So I think so. What what would be your advice or or how do you cope with seeing stuff that contradicts maybe your ethics or maybe, you know, because I'll admit, like back to your to tie your question into this of like, how have you changed? There were situations where I had a client like that type of client where I was like, eh, like, I feel like I'm not helping them with what I'm doing. And I feel like there could be something more, but I don't want to maybe use a certain method or I don't want to use a certain tool. And they left and they went somewhere else. And then they used a tool or a method that I at the time would never have used. And then their results Mm -hmm. were great. And it, it, it helped them. Like we hear a lot about fallout and it's, it's there. It's, it's the reason why I'm not bringing it up is because it's brought up and it's beaten over. Like we all heard fallout and fallout and aversives cause fallout. Sometimes they don't. And sometimes dogs thrive on it. And that's been what's been messing in my head and that's what I think about and that's what has been putting me on the path that I was on especially from coming from a place where I was a like I was trained to be very compulsive and when I first used electric collars they only had five levels Mm -hmm. it was like level one and two the dog didn't feel level three the dog was yelping and that was the level that you use level five was an emergency right now they have hundreds of levels and they're, they're hundreds of dollars and they have all these different levels, blah, blah, blah. So what started happening to me was I was like, well, the way I was doing things was terrible and did cause fallout and did cause all of this stuff that I see people warn about. So I, I see that's what makes it hard. Like I see the force-free argument, like I've lived it, I've seen it, I've seen dogs get, get, become silent strikers, get superstitious associations, become aggressive and fearful because of the way that they're trained. But I've also seen dogs that have struggled for years with positive reinforcement. And then with even the minor 
introduction of certain tools and certain scenarios than thrive. And that caused me a lot of internal struggle because, and I'm putting myself out here with this podcast and, you know, like some of my recent posts on my Instagram, because I have a community of people that I cherish and love and enjoy. And they're close friends of mine that I have built over the years. Um, many of whom I've never even met in person, but I respect them and I, I love them and their dogs and I've learned a lot from, but now it's like, you have this, like, you almost feel dirty or like tarnished or evil. Like it almost, like people joke about like the, like I joke with Anthony, like, oh, I'm like, I'm going to teach you, take you to the dark side. Like it almost feels like that. But, and I know that it's anecdotal and it's like, you know, I have no data to prove it, but I've seen it. So how do you, what do you do when you come across stuff like that, that goes against everything that you believe? And then it makes you question, because then it makes me wonder like, well, how far does this rabbit hole go? Like, what else am I getting wrong? And now it's like, I need to go all the way back to the beginning. And that's why I was joking again, like, oh, like, what do I believe it? it, Because it, it's just like, oh, it's weird. Life is weird like that, right? Like you get more data and then your, your thoughts shift and sometimes it's stressful. Yes, very stressful. stressful. (laughs) Yeah, it it definitely is. So I think as far as, you know, your question about you struggling with one methodology and, um, you know, then seeing another methodology work, I guess my question would be is, you know, what, what are we talking again? It's not black. Like what's the result? Cause like, yeah. Cause you, you know, be like, what is, yeah. what is, what is the risk? What is the, um, you know, what is the, uh, risk meaning, you know, what is the outcome if the behavior is not attained and what are we talking about doing in order to get that behavior? Um, I think that that is my question. It's so hard to answer without knowing that, you know. Yeah, and so then that's where that's where I'm kind of, and that's that's I'm glad that you brought that up. That's that's exactly boiling down to the point that, and that's why we've been having these conversations with Mm -hmm. people that are very well respected in this field, because yeah, I think that's exactly what like what is. You know, because we can, we we've had many things on Lima, and it seems like when we try to talk to these people about Lima, when I say these people, the people that are saying like, "Oh, we are positive, are Lima based," it seems like once you get to negative reinforcement and positive punishment, which is part of Lima, then they like shy away from talking about how they're doing it. So then, how are we supposed to do it? Or and if we're not supposed to do it, then why are you calling it Lima? Because like negative reinforcement or positive punishment could be a huge, like that could be a huge mm-hmm. freaking thing. That could be shooting an air canister over the back of my shoulder, or it could be literally taking a bonker and slamming the dog on the top of the head. So or my or my example of me picking up my dog and or picking her up your and dog, petting yeah. her. Yeah. So, I mean, so that, or for my again. dog, or for my dog, as Steph knows, if you hand him a treat, he's running away. So so then <laughs> I guess right. my question is, does there need to be behavior specific almost like prescription 
like prescription punishment, right? Like, I don't know the word for it, but it's like, you have a a type of, you have anxiety and they go, okay, we're going to give you this medication. We're going to give you this dose. So then would there be like, Hey, I have X dog and he's been doing Y behavior for Z amount of months. And the risk is, I don't know, I'm running out of letters. Like, okay, we're going to like prescribe. You are going to do, you know, five collar pops. Like I'm just making up a scenario. And then if the five collar pops don't work, we're going to move on to an air canister spray two times every three days. Like that's what becomes so weird about it because then the way I might do it might be different than Anthony, might be different than you. And then again, like where the behavior is stemming from, whether it's nervousness or it's overconfidence or it's it's this or that, that also is playing into it. And then where the learner is at, meaning the dog, what kind of dog is it? What is their threshold to all of this stuff? Like that's why this gets so confusing. And, 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 then, don't forget, and, and don't forget the owner's capability. Yeah. And then the owner's capability and then the mm-hmm. owner's capability of listening to you correctly. They're like, mm-hmm. oh, wait, I thought you're supposed to spray the pet corrector up the nose. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You're like, what? Mm-hmm. Like, I never oh, said I, that, yep. you know? Mm-hmm. So like, and this is why I think no one's really talking about this, except for us, like two and a half hours into this, <laughs> this, <laughs> this podcast episode that I don't even know we're going to name this one, <laughs> you know, because it gets super ramblings (laughs) yeah we're just like rambling off on the deep end at this point and then yeah and then there's people that are at least i think successfully implementing some of these tools or at least have been using them long enough where they'd be like hey you idiot like i've been using a pet corrector for 20 years like obviously don't like that was and i've talked about this a lot like the one thing that threw me off a lot when i started learning from balanced trainers was the way they were using the tools was like way nicer than i would have used them (laughs) like you know what i mean i was like oh shit like that's not how you're supposed to do that and i think that to me is where again my ethics shift of like if I go to someone's house and they have a prong collar I know that I could sit there on on week one of meeting them and be like oh prong collars are horrible never use them use a harness they're gonna put the harness on their dog's gonna pull more and they're gonna say fuck Vinny I'm never calling him again and then the dog's gonna be in a prong collar again and they don't know how to use the prong collar correctly so now I'm like okay you know what I'm gonna teach them how to use the prong collar correctly even though maybe ethically it's not the tool I would want right now but I'm going to build some rapport with them. They're going to trust me. And then maybe down the road, I could switch them to something. If that's what's even beneficial to them, I'm not going to switch them off of a tool that's working for them. If then it's going to cause them a bunch of stress and other piss at their dog. And they're like, I don't even want to walk my dog anymore. You know, like, mm-hmm. I don't know now I'm ranting, but it's, it's, this is at least for me, what then gets confusing, you know, yeah. cause I can go into someone's house all high and mighty with my theology and my, my studies and and whatever I want. But if they're not getting, you know, to tie this back into training, which is another stressor is like, we, it's a dirty word, but results kind of matter. Mm -hmm. You know, like it sucks. But if I go to someone's house 10 times and they're paying me X amount of money and they spent this amount of money, they're, they're hiring me because they have a problem and they want me to fix it. I know like, the word fix and the word like solution, like those are all dirty words now, but it's like, I'm not teaching you how to take care of your, your like individual dog in your house that you love. And if you have one dog and you want to train them a certain way and you want to build this like slow, long relationship and you want to do it, everything that's good. But unfortunately, you know, we have competitors. There are other people. They our clientele want, do want results. Um, so that's something that doesn't get brought up 
you know, either of like, oh, it shouldn't be about the results. Well, like, yeah, maybe you feel that way, but then I don't know where your clients are going to, you know, come from. Um, yeah, that's, that's all I got. I'm sorry. You guys are all looking at me like, Whoa. Are you sure? I don't no, know. I mean, I can keep going, but I want to stop. Well, I, I think, I think you're illustrating right there, the dog training, um, basically example of what, you know, the different ethical frameworks and how different people would, you know, depending on their ethical framework, how they would go about, you know, answering the question in that given situation. So, you know, the, the person who is, um, has a utilitarian based ethical framework uh, is going to feel what is the best outcome for the most people in this situation, they are probably going to um, use the prong collar. And, you know, for the reason that they feel it is more ethical that, you know, they do that, than have the person go to somebody else or, or use the collar themselves incorrectly. And then, of course, if you have more of a deontological uh, framework, you are going to feel that no, you're not going to do that just because it is wrong. That's it. Um, and then you have people again, rights perspective, they're going to say, you know, the dog has a right to not feel pain. So I'm not going to do that. It really depends on how, you know, what your framework is. And again, every situation is going to be different and your framework is going to shift situationally. Um, you know, I, I wish I could say there was an easy answer. Um, but ultimately we may not agree. So, you know, I, from a, and this is a much, um, kind of lighter than, uh, and maybe that's why, because, uh, dog, you know, stress is not necessarily as, as, um, much in play, uh, as it is in your situation where you're dealing with, with BMOD with behavior issues, but I teach what I teach in agility. I have my ethics in agility. I set up my courses. I don't, um, you know, if you're looking for somebody to, um, teach maybe a much more collected style of agility constantly. I'm not your person. I, I like, I believe in certain course types. I believe in letting the dog, um, get speed. I believe in, in building independence in the dog. Um, and so if you don't like my style of dog agility training, then you can go someplace See you else. later. <laughs> yeah. She um, doesn't believe in pinwheels is what she said. <laughs> Somebody's made me do pinwheels before. Yeah. I'm, I definitely have a style that I like and, um, that is probably not the most common style of, of agility that is typically played on an everyday weekend by the average competitor. If you don't like the courses that I'm setting up, you know, in class, I'm not your instructor for you. I, I have no qualms about saying that. Um, and again, this is why I teach agility and I, I stay away from, um, you know, some of the heavier, uh, dog training because 
I am that type of person where um, I'm not necessarily, I'm, I at, often have my beliefs. I feel strongly in my beliefs and I'm not budging, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I am more ethical than somebody that is. It's just how my framework is, is set. And um, I think, you know, understanding that is important too. And that's what's hard too when you're starting out because like mm-hmm. after a while you can have the privilege of selecting and choosing who you take on as a client. But if you're yes. trying to become a dog trainer, which like, you know, we're not getting paid like lawyers, right? <laughs> like, and you're trying to support yourself, you can't really be like, hey, my name is Vinny and I'm a new dog trainer around here and I have like two months of experience. And guess what? I'm only going to take 15% of the people that reach out to me. And if you don't like my methods, like see you later, bye. Like I'm going to mm-hmm. be super selective. It's like, it's hard to do that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's hard to do that. And you are dealing with like the general public. And I find that now that I have an Instagram following or people that are, that are following me on social media for a long time and they reached out to me for training, I find it great because they know who I am. They obviously were attracted to something that I was doing with my own dogs and they knew what I was about. So training them feels different than when like someone locally that knows really nothing about me, but they just wanted me to come and train their dog because they don't know who I am. They don't know what my methods are and they might be a totally different type of person. Um, But again, starting out and a new trainer, and if all you're doing is being a dog trainer, you don't have other sources of income, it's hard for you to be like, okay, I'm going to have this like really strict standard of like what my clientele is. And I'm just going to push everyone else around, you know, like that is going to take years to get to. Yeah. And it's not even so much clientele, but just on your rigidity of what you believe and not, Mm -hmm. um, you know, using that tool because you don't believe that that's what you should do. So, you know, I think that's, that's a stand that everybody kind of has to come to themselves. You know, you have to decide what, you know, what your ethical framework is. And, you know, again, I may not necessarily agree with it, but I think that's, why it is really important to question and understand where somebody's coming from because you using a prong collar or a tool or applying pressure in that situation is very different than um, somebody who is just not trying to exhaust all the other means. Does that kind of make sense too? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's a great point. Anthony, you look like you're you're holding in thoughts. I was thinking about the conversation that um I don't know if it was yesterday or today. I can't even remember honestly. That um where I said to you uh what did I say to you? I said the problem is is that like when we're the so Vinny the thing with Vinny and I which is interesting is even Be careful if we, what you share here. Even, <laughs> the thing is, is um, even though we know the answer to certain things that we throw at each other, it, we ask these questions because like, we'll, we'll ask questions just simply because like, not even that we just want to hear, I don't think like just what we each other have to say, but like what other people are thinking or 
-hmm. Like I said, I don't know, Vinny and I were talking about something and he asked me a question and I answered it. And then after I answered it, I started thinking more about it. And I was saying, you know, it's funny because for me, one of the things is I was just kind of as, as a constant learner, I'm taking in information. And it's funny because you learn from one methodology and they're going to tell you everything that is right or goes well for them. Mm -hmm. And then you hear someone else who tells you about their methodology and how it's right and all the success that they have. And, and this topic was on aggression that Vinny and I were talking about. And we were kind of like about the topic, like, is that it is, uh, you know, is there more like why are other people having success addressing these issues and, and others aren't, you know, and is it related to methodology? Why is that person always, you know, saying, oh, they were able to fix this or that, right? Like the word fix, you know, like I was able to fix that. I was able to do this. I was able to even cure, you know, like all these words that are being thrown out. And I was just thinking about how I, you know, I don't even know that that's necessarily true. I think it's just that they're not sharing the one, the cases that didn't go well, or the cases that left them to go to someone else who was either training the same as them or training totally different, mm-hmm. you know? So I, I don't know, like, it's just like a random thought I was having in my head as, as you guys were, were chatting is that, and and that's why I think it's so important to learn from others, even if you don't want, you don't have to, like I always say, don't have to do anything uh, that you don't feel comfortable doing. You can just literally just watch what they're presenting. And, and if anything, if you take nothing away, the one thing you're going to take away from it is why you don't do it. Mm-hmm. You have yeah. more information of why you don't want to do that, but like, I'll tell you, like with my play skills, they've improved over time, actually from learning from trainers of a methodology I didn't learn from before. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, and they see my play skills or my videos, like with my dogs playing, I get all this, like, I get all this praise and stuff and everything. And it's funny because I, I kind of chuckle a lot of times because I'm like, it's so funny that these people are saying, oh, like, that's so great. This and that. Meanwhile, like, you're also the person who says you would never learn from someone who trains different than you. But little do you know, I learned from that person. And you're telling me that my play skills are good, you know. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes, like, you just don't know what you don't know. <laughs> yeah, you know? absolutely. You know? I think <laughs> I think if we the reason why in sports you go to, you know, a high level trainer is because you want to grow. You want to learn. If you stick with somebody who has a similar skill set as you, then you're probably not going to advance. So you have to seek out those people that have something that you don't so that you can potentially grow from them. So I think that's important. And um, again, coming from a livestock background, I don't shy away from animal rights and um, from, you know, maybe some of the, you know, the more, um, 
I would say, you know, kind of uh, adverse to livestock production mentalities. Um, I'll often take that information back to my students and we'll kind of dissect it and say, you know, what, what is accurate here and what is not accurate? And um, are some of the concerns are surrounding livestock production by these people, are they valid and why and what can we do about that? So I think learning and, and being open to different opinions is so, so very important so very important. And as far as you don't know what you don't know, that is so true. And that's, I think, my conundrum about how do I, how do I set up somebody who is a complete novice in this? Um, and so that's, that's kind of what brought us all on here tonight. Um, and I, I still think my best answer. And I think from what I'm gleaning from everybody here is some background in science, I still think is important. Um, yes, there are limitations to science. Um, we need to keep growing that. But I do think that having that understanding uh, of potential fallouts and why we want to exhaust all those methods are really important this way when you go to somebody and second lesson they're using an adversive right away that newbie can basically be like whoa did we exhaust everything you know I think I think that's that might be the the key and I think keeping an inquiring mind just constantly trying to learn yeah would you guys agree yep yeah that's great advice getting a solid scientific background and then getting your hands on a lot of dogs. That's what my yeah. advice would be. <laughs> yeah. Experience. There's no um, substitute for experience. Uh, there's absolutely, absolutely none. I know the more dogs I work with, even in agility, I'm seeing behaviors that people are doing that are, you know, causing the dogs to do certain things. And I would never have necessarily had that in my mental library of things to look out for if I didn't have that experience. So yeah, absolutely. So where can everyone learn more about you? Do you have uh, anywhere that people can find you if they want to contact you, uh, social media, or if you want to throw your dog training business information <laughs> out there, whatever you want, go right ahead. Well, um, you can find me in uh, the personals at Rutgers University if you're more interested in what I do there and um, my role there and the livestock on our teaching farm, um, Rutgers, Rutgers.edu. That's uh, if you search animal care, I'll come up in there. Um, as far as my personal um, dog training, um, I'm on Instagram. Uh, that's probably the best place to see some of my stuff. I generally keep a, a low profile. Um, I, I try to, um, not, not, I'm not out there putting myself out there a whole ton. Um, but yeah, I'm on, I'm on Instagram. So I'm sure in the show notes, you can, you can put a link to that if you like. Um, you can see but, a viral video of her dog eating eggs. It's very comical. <laughs> 
I highly recommend you watch it. <laughs> speaking speaking of ethics and um and you know beliefs, oh my gosh, that one's that one's uh there's there's a whole thread on there whether dogs can have eggshells or not, and I just choose to ignore it. So. <laughs> <laughs> but Faye is very very cute um, eating her eating her eggs. And Vinny's probably having a heart attack because eggs are nine dollars a dozen now. So <laughs> it's an expensive meal over there. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Canine Classroom. If you like the show, make sure to smack that like button, share the show with your friends, and give us a rating. Until next time, class dismissed. <laughs> <laughs>